Hey everybody, Whiskey Eye here, and welcome to our 100th episode. For those of you that uh, were listening and maybe caught it, I'm going to say welcome back to this week's episode. Uh, We had a few technical difficulties on this week's uh, episode, which kind of stands to reason. We've been doing this now for about four years. I think January 2020 was the first episode we put out. Um, It was right before the world shut down. We were in New York and... I built the website and we kind of got everything started and it's just super exciting to look back and see all the people that we've met and the places we've traveled and the friendships we've formed and I don't know, motorcycles are the greatest thing for all of those reasons. Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who listens and supports and is a Patreon. Um, you know, I do the majority of the behind the scenes work and Rob does all the fancy talking. Uh, we love this podcast. It's a lot of fun and it's pretty big success for two people who are generally uh time management challenged i guess you could say uh the two of us are always running around doing a million things at once and the fact that we've been able to be this consistent and getting stuff out over all these years is pretty great pretty great accomplishment for the two of us um but yeah so thank you for all of you for just being part of this for so long hopefully we'll keep it going for another hundred episodes um, if there's folks you guys want to hear, you can always let us know. Hit us up on Instagram, send Rob a message. Um, you know, if, if there's a story maybe you want to tell, reach out and uh, let us know. For those of you planning to make it to Daytona Bike Week in a few weeks in March, um, I will be there at least the first half of the week and definitely uh, Wednesday at the Renegade Babes booth helping uh, sassy pants out over there. And so if folks are around, come by and say, hey, grab some stickers introduce yourself, and uh, we'll see you out there on the road. So again, happy 100th episodes. Cheers to the winners of all the giveaways this week, and uh, happy listening. Here we go, man. The GoPro is rolling. Welcome to this week's show. Oh, hold on. I gotta get you mounted. What's up, YouTube? Ah, fuck, dude. I'm gonna have to reposition this, I think. Um, Oh, no, we're good. That's good. Um, all right, welcome to this week's show, uh, Crazy Gentleman Podcast. I'm your host, Crazy Gentleman, and this is the 100th episode. Pretty damn cool. Um, we got a bunch of giveaways from a lot of cool sponsors. Uh, for everyone who's been listening, uh, kind of knows at this point, giving a lot of cool shit away. And, um, picked up a few more Patreons. Uh, I'm wearing one of their shirts by chance today. This is Kelvis Art. Thank you, Kevin. Um, oh, and uh, also shout out to No Luck Paintworks. Thank you for jumping on, dude. You're the man, Dan. And uh, I think I'm actually gonna see you in a couple months, uh, probably at Loctite's place. Um, anyways, welcome to the 100th. Thank you everyone for uh, hanging in there for 100 episodes. And I guess let's just cut to the chase before I do the actual show intro. Let's do what everyone's been waiting for, man. What do you guys want first? Comment on Instagram. The Lexan or the Kenny's House of Horsepower $1,000 gift certificate. You got um, Kenny's gift certificate right here for everyone watching on YouTube and Instagram. Uh, Your name can be here if you're a lucky member. Or the Lexan. What is everyone saying? I can't see it. I don't think anyone's saying shit. We're down to four freaking people. Everyone's bailing, dude. There's everyone for the first minute. 
All right, we're going to give a certificate. That's it. The banker on the Harley has spoke. Um, all right, so here we go. Uh, I think the last one was like only 12 people. So in the last few weeks, the, the first thing that I gave away also for this 100th episode, for anyone new coming on or whatever, um, was two tickets to Mama Tried and a merch pack for Mama Tried. And uh, I can't wait to meet that patron. Uh, he's also staying with me at the Airbnb. Kind of a little perk. Um, yeah, I wanted to do that early though, so that, you know, they had time to plan this trip. But anyways, pretty cool. Got some more people signed on here. Uh, throwing the chips in these pretty freaking cool panhead valve covers. Do it up. Shake it up. All right. This is crazy, dude. Who's getting a thousand dollars right here? Number four. Let's see who number four is. Oh shit! Patrick Long, dude. Longy man. That's a New York native, dude. Here, there you guys want to see it. Number four, dude. Thousand dollars. Something tells me that uh, Kenny's gonna be getting a shovel head soon. Um, pretty cool. Patrick rides the fucking wheels off his shovel head. I don't even know if it's in America right now. It might be in Ireland. It's somewhere, dude. That's pretty cool, man. It's a good winner. Thousand dollars. Kenny's house of horsepower. Boom. I guess that leaves Novus up next. Uh, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll bring the computer up to you guys. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if anyone wants to see that list, but there's the list. All right. Novus headset. Boom. Dun, dun, dun. I don't know if both cameras are picking that up, but uh, reach around here. Numero uno. Let's see who that is. Number one. Number one. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Yo, dude, Willie Jack. You're going to be rolling in fucking style. You got a headset for you and Leanne. You're going to Mexico soon. You're going to have music and you can talk. Pretty freaking awesome. That is awesome. Uh, definitely going to a good home. I know he's gonna use the hell out of that. I don't think he has any, any headset in his helmet now. I don't think so. Uh, he's gonna love that. Uh, what else are we giving away next? What are we doing? Uh, Kenny's house, a horsepower shirt, a wallet. Let's do, let's do the wallet and then we'll move on to shirts and all that shit. Uh, this is just, this is an awesome leather wallet. Um, that I got for myself and I said, fuck it, I'm gonna order two and throw it in the giveaway, dude. It is a rad little wallet. So here you go. Who's gonna win it? Number 13.
Tim Alexander. And I might, I might, I, I forgot, I'm, this is so bad. I think that's who won the Mama Tried tickets. Um, so that's cool. If it is, I'll give you the wallet directly in Milwaukee. Um, I'm pretty sure, I'm such an idiot. I never saved the dude's number. So I just go back in the text messages every time I've been calling him. But anyways, either way, Tim Alexander, you got a wallet, dude. Um, let's see who's up next. Um, number 16. Um, 16, what do you want? What do you want? I don't know who you are yet. But uh, let's do, let's do Kenny's House of Horsepower shirt. And with all of these, um, I didn't tell everyone, but uh, I have an insane sticker collection. So with everyone's stuff that gets sent out, I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna throw in a bunch of crazy stickers from over the years. Everything from like those crazy uh, biker, like helmet expression stickers or whatever. What the fuck, dude? I'm getting a FaceTime call right now. I don't know if it's gonna fuck up the Instagram live, but. We're still on YouTube. But anyways, yeah, everyone's gonna get like a bunch of stickers and crazy gentleman stickers and um, uh, yeah, and just some stickers from my collection over the years. Uh, anyways, number 16, let's, I forgot, let's see who you are. Um, you're getting a Kenny's House Horsepower shirt. Uh, number 16, Scott B. I have no idea who Scott B is, but I will reach out to you on the Patreon and figure your info out. Get your shirt. Uh, put your chip with the shirt. Let's do the Lexan shirt next. Pause due to poor connect. Dude, this kid fucking phone call is killing me. Um, all right, cool. Anyways, Lexan shirt. Um, I think all these shirts are size large and XL. I, I forgot to check the Kenny's one. I think it's a large. Anyways, uh, anyways, for a Lexan shirt, here we go. Scramble them up a little. Boom, number 18. That would be the, the newest Patreon member. Congratulations, dude. You've already won something. Uh, I think number 16 was also, like, I, gotta, I, I think like four people signed up yesterday. So everyone's brand new here. 16 and 18, man. You guys are lucky. You're already winning stuff. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yo, that's uh, Kevin, Kelvis Art. You got yourself a Lexan shirt, dude. I will personally give you this in Milwaukee in a couple weeks, and I think that works out. This is an XL. I'm assuming you're an XL, but uh, pretty cool, dude. I'm excited to give people things in real life instead of just mail, so that's cool. And I hope Tim Alexander is the guy who won the Mama Tried tickets, because uh, it'd be cool to give him that in real life too. Put your shirt with your chip, um, and this one will be Evan Simbita, Simbita, custom, underscore, custom, underscore, knives on Instagram. SimbitaCustomKnives.com. Longtime sponsor of the podcast. And I just actually, newsflash, or no, breaking news. I just got a, a set of scales in the mail today. That'll be for my next Evan Simbita Custom Knives. So that's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to another new knife. And here you go. Hopefully it is another pretty good sized person because this is a size XL. I also, oh, also in a lot of these packages, I got a bunch of Sambita stickers and I'm gonna throw in 
randomly some Symbita custom koozies in packages also. So anyways, let's see who's winning this Symbita. Number 10. Uh, who is number 10? Number 10. Ah, oh, fuck. God damn it. What is going on? I don't know what the hell went on there. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I'm so bad with all this, dude. Uh, Todd Alton. Hell yeah, dude. That's a New York dude. I will personally, and I, I'm pretty sure he's an XL. Pretty, pretty good sized kid. Um, hell yeah, congratulations. Todd Alton. Uh, some beat a custom shirt coming your way, dude. Let's uh, drink a few beers. I'm back on the train. Back on the wagon, whatever they call it. I'll call it a train. That's where I go. Um, so yeah, Todd, let's fucking meet up, dude. You got yourself a shirt. Um, koozies, I'm gonna just randomly throw in packages. Uh, and then, everyone who did not win, uh, first off I wanna say, I'm gonna scan these cameras around and show you the second bike that's getting thrown in this bike giveaway with the purchase of these two stickers. The purchase of these two stickers gets you entered to win two of my motorcycles. Um, so everyone's gonna get these stickers um, with the bike purchase. I don't think I have enough Chicken Rick stickers, so everyone just can't get those. And that was kind of the deal, raffle only. And then whatever I have extra, I'll send some shit out. But I gotta wait till the raffle's over. Everyone, every single Patreon member for this 100th episode is gonna get a Crazy Gentleman t-shirt. Um, so whoever did not win, now nah, you know what, screw it. Whoever won also, I'm giving everyone a shirt. I was only gonna do the non-winners, non but whatever, dude, I'm on one. Um, everyone's gonna get a Crazy Gentleman shirt. I'll reach out to everybody individually and uh, get their sizes and address and all that. And uh, everyone's getting these. So congratulations. Um, I guess that means I guess that means I'm like one of these people that give out participation trophies now. Does that make me a participation trophy person? Boy, I hope not. Anyways, um, yeah. So everyone's gonna get a crazy gentleman st uh, stickers, uh, t-shirt, and random stickers from my crazy ass sticker collection. I got a wild sticker collection. So I'll just throw in like a handful in everyone's packages. And um, damn, dude, I look forward to uh, meeting the people I don't know. Just reach out anytime. Um, thank you so much for everyone coming on. <clears throat> and I'll read, you know, whatever. I'll get these things shipped out tomorrow. And um, yeah, let's get on to the show. I don't even know how long we're into this for. This is one of those forever intros. Uh, no, before the show, yeah, yeah, I'm excited for this. Before the show, um, everyone knows Patreon members get two-for-one raffle tickets. So, let me adjust this camera here. Uh, being that apparently people aren't crazy about this yellow bike, I decided to throw in another bike that I was just going to sell anyway in the springtime. But I'm going to let the, the winner of this raffle pick which bike they want. And I'm gonna throw in another $500. So the winner first place will get to choose one of these bikes 
and second place will get $1,000, third place will get $500, and fourth place will get $500, and I'm also still donating $1,000, ah shit, I lost connection here, I wanted to, okay, wait till I get back for the live people, I'm also donating $1,000 to Jess and John Luke's um, motorcycle recovery, for anyone who doesn't know, Jess was in a horrible motorcycle accident, probably like eight months ago now. She was in a coma for a while. She just started driving like a week ago. Um, she was basically bedridden for months. She was in a coma for like, I don't even know how long, two to four weeks, I forgot. But um, she's just barely like, they're barely getting things normal again, man. She was, she's lucky to be alive. And uh, yeah, so $1,000 is going to them too from this whole raffle. Anyways, also for everyone listening on YouTube and Instagram Live, let's uh, fix these cameras a little and let's pan around. Oh my God, this fucking, for anyone on YouTube, you can see the enormous setup I have this phone on for Instagram Live. I'm just trying to maneuver that around. Let's, uh, so these are the two bikes I'm going to, Obviously, we're doing the yellow FXR4. Everyone sees that. Let's try and pan it this way. Yeah, there we go. For the Instagram Live people, we're not really doing awesome. You guys know about the FXR, but, uh, wow, sorry, YouTube. Um, there's the FXR. Everyone knows. Instagram can't really see it because everyone's seen it. But I'm also throwing in my 2020 Lowrider S. Uh, here you go. It's been awesome. I've been all over North America on it. Done Mexico, from here to California, Colorado, you name it, man. It's been on a zillion road trips in the couple years I owned it. I bought it brand new. Um, never even thought I'd, I couldn't in my wildest dreams think I'd ever have a new bike, uh, but bought this bad boy during the pandemic. And um, immediately hit the road and went, I've strapped my bow and arrow on the back of this thing. It was the first road trip when it was like two weeks old and uh, went gator and hog hunting in Florida. That's how I got that gator that everyone sees in the videos. I actually killed that in Florida for anyone who don't know that. Um, and it was on the back of this bike uh, amongst many, many, many other adventures. But uh, yeah, dude, so winner's gonna get to pick. This twin cam FXR4 or this 2020 Lowrider S, dude. I don't know what raffle on the internet's that cool. Um, this thing is done up. It's filthy now. I'm gonna actually wash it sometime between now and Sunday. We're getting some good weather. I'm, I'm actively riding these bikes still. Cell phone mounts are still on them. As you can see, they're on the tenders. You know, every bike in here is on the battery tenders. I call it their umbilical cords. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm actively riding all these bikes still. So whatever miles is on it is, I think it's, I think it's like around 30,000 now. But uh, yeah, dude, boosted Brad risers, um, green vans grips, uh, killer fucking horsepower industries, HPI pipe. I waited a long time for that thing. K&N, 90 degree elbow. Anyone who tunes knows that will be your best horsepower. 
Um, it is also tuned. Um, it's just ready to go, man. It's got good rubber on it, brakes, the whole nine. Like I said, this was my personal bike from day one, man. Shout out to eBay Jake. He hooked it up during the pandemic. I flew down to North Carolina and rode this thing home. And uh, it's going to be missed, man. It's going to be missed. But uh, on to bigger and better things. Uh, that 94 FXR, I'm going to pick up my fucking fully polished twin cam for that. Whoa, breaking news. I'm going to be building a uh, radical little twin cam out of that 94. Uh, I've been collecting parts and all that stuff to do that for a while. Um, it was going to be a wild um, Evo bike. Or I shouldn't say wild, but like, it's, this is, it's gonna be my next everyday ride. It kind of took a turn. I'm gonna kind of cut it up a little. I'm gonna do a whole YouTube documentation on that too. Um, I was good, that was gonna be the FXR4 replica bike, but I can't help myself. I'm gonna make a cool little chopper. Anyways, this low rider is also gonna come with this detachable sissy bar here. Uh, it is not gonna come with the bare knuckle bags. I'm taking those brackets off. I'm putting the detachable sissy bar back on and it'll get that trunk also this is um i'll get hold on let me let me get this let me get this over here because i realized i am screwing the instagram live people um yeah it's gonna get this trunk that i used to have on it uh pretty cool setup it's also just a standard harley um luggage rack in the back that it's bolted to uh, so if you really just don't like the trunk, you could just take that off and then you got a sissy bar. This rack also detaches from the sissy bar if you just want a sissy bar, but it is detachable also quick detach. Um, this is a cool little box though. Just a quickie for everyone on YouTube, all stainless steel anchors all around this thing. So you could strap your camp to the top of it. Uh, I also installed a lock so you can lock this thing. Um, and that's about it, man. Pretty cool. Got a pad for your girl. And uh, yeah, just a cool little around town blaster. This thing is pretty handy. So you'll get that. You ain't getting the bare knuckle bags because that's going on another bike. So uh, yeah, I would never give those up. Anyways, uh, let's get on to this episode. Um, today's episode is brought to you by, oh shit, ho, oh my God. Wow. I am a total, total moron. Uh, bare knuckle is, <laughs> oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Paul, I'm very sorry. Paul, bare knuckle, Paul, not today's guest. Um, dude, I'm such an idiot. Bare knuckle is donating a hundred dollars for the hundredth episode. God, how did I forget that one? Hold on, back to the chips, back to the drawing board. God, I'm an idiot. Oh man, how could I, I mean, this is, this is why I'm your, this is why I'm your mechanic and your podcaster, not your attorney. So anyways, let's uh, get this thing set back up here. I don't even know how I set this up, dude. I don't know how I set it up, but here, you got the angle. These things are still in there. I'm gonna shake them up. Nothing changed. Um, bare knuckle, $100 giveaway, dude. I'm so sorry. This is so bad. Um, 
Let's see who's getting it. $100, spend it how you want at bare knuckle. Number three, number three, number three. Who are you, number three? Oh, sick, dude. Dylan Porter. Hell yeah, dude. I'm so happy. I am so happy this went to. I'm so happy this kid won something. He has been uh, a supporter from the fucking beginning. Um, and he's just cool, man. We, we talk all the time. And uh, hell yeah, Dylan. I'll be calling you. I'll give you a phone call tomorrow. Uh, you got $100 at Bare Knuckle. Uh, the reason there's nothing here for Bare Knuckle, um, when I spoke to Sam, it was um, he just said whenever you do the drawing or whatever, just, oh, Jesus Christ. Sorry, I'm floating around with YouTube here. Uh, he said, whenever I do the drawing, just contact them, put, put the winner in contact with them and, uh, you'll get your hundred dollars to spend however you want at bareknuckleperformance.com. So yeah, thanks to Evan Sambita Custom Knives. Thanks to Bare Knuckle Paul. Thanks to Lexin and uh, huge thank you to Kenny's House of Horsepower. And, uh, man, I just want to say thank you again to everyone who supports this show and thank you. I mean, and congratulations to the winners. Damn, this is a run on, um, just gonna put that there. So let me put this thing down. I'm getting sick of holding the GoPro. So let's get to today's show. Today's show. I'm very excited to announce. Today's guest is Paul Cox from Paul Cox Industries. Uh, I've looked up to this guy for as long as I could remember before I even built my first bike, man. Uh, I've been watching this guy on TV and um, I bump into him every now and again, like uh, around New York and all, but we never really got a, a long winded chance to talk like this podcast. And I couldn't, I couldn't have asked for anything better, man. Paul, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, everything, man. Your craftsmanship over the years. I don't think he realizes, uh, I, me and Chicken Rick had said something after we stopped rolling, but man, I, yeah, just how many people over the years and young kids like me when I was a young kid, this guy has influenced, man. He's influenced like a whole generation and, and, a, and a large part of an industry. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know what more to say, dude. The guy speaks for himself. He's world famous and, um, he's just, I've said it on many podcasts. I think one of the greatest craftsmen of our time. I mean, I don't know anyone who does as many, I don't know anyone who has as many talents as him on, on the highest level. Like he does everything to the highest level. It's amazing. Uh, and it's even more incredible. Uh, I got to thank him again for giving us the tour of the shop and like seeing how, where and how he does it all. It's, it's incredible. But anyways, you guys will hear all about that in this episode. And also thank you so much to my favorite sidekick, my favorite wingman, one of my best buds in the world who fully participated on this episode with us. Uh, I love calling Rick when I have an exciting guest and he is just so pumped to come along and take pictures and 
ask all of his questions and if I could, man, I'd have Rick on for every episode. Like he is, he is awesome. Thank you so much, Rick. And uh, I don't know. Me and Rick have been talking too. I'm spilling a lot of beans here on the hundredth episode, but uh, I, I'm ta I want to have Rick do a couple episodes here and there, whenever he's feeling up for it and the guest is right and all in his travels and and just hand the show over to him for for episodes here and there. Um, I just I got a lot of love for Rick, man, and I'm I'm uh, very thankful he's a good friend of mine. So thank you for everything you do, Rick. And uh, I guess if we're spilling the beans here in advance, thanks, Rick, for bringing your bike to Flat Out Friday for me and uh, letting me rip that little guy around. Uh, so yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. So many thank yous in this world. On to the show. I really do think this is my favorite show I've ever done. So, uh, hope you guys enjoy it. I present to you, Mr. Paul Cox. See you next week. It's been, um, you know, the same thing, but having less space and having to kind of like specialize each area. Yeah. I've been so much more productive here yeah. in half the space because I've yeah. got like 1,200 compared to 2500 yeah and i don't know how much cross traffic you had in new york but here it kind of seems a little bit more isolated you could kind of just be by yourself yeah 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 i guess i guess that like you said this is the most productive space you've ever had is it uh sorry dude. Do you, no no it's all right do you find it uh that reason because there's less noise than the city like like rick was saying just less like people, people walking through around. and you know, people stopping by and just, you know, pretending yeah. like it's a hangout, not a workshop. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely, it's, um, that's part of it. And, uh -huh. am I sitting down with you? Yeah, that's fine. Like, we can sit, there. we can stand, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, that's part of it. And, I mean, but even in Brooklyn, it got to the point where, um, you know, when I had the, the shop there, Cool. Where there's too much traffic coming through. Yeah, I mean, you know, because initially years ago, you know, the hangout part of it was kind of fun. You know, people dug that. And going all the way back to like Rivington Street on the Lower East Side in the early 90s, and it was definitely, you know, a lot of hanging out. But it always, that's the thing that always drove me crazy. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a private, like I had a spot upstairs on Rivington Street, you know, bench space with my box where I would do fabrication stuff. Um, you know, with Larry and Steg and Frank and everybody up there, but also had a separate space in the basement right. um, where I did the leather work. So it was kind of, you know, between between both. So I liked going down in the basement <laughs> and getting left alone. Yeah. You know, from all like the, the hanging out so much. Yeah. And um, I mean, just going back to that real quick, I mean, there was also uh, a spot down there where our old friend uh, Fritz, I don't know if you know, uh, Fritz, Fritz, by Fritz? Fritz by Fritz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. he was painting at his place on Long Island, and um, Larry loved his his paintwork, uh -huh. and um, we set him up with a, a spot in the basement as well, and built out a whole spray booth, and he had his prep area and everything downstairs. Oh wow! At Psycho, where he painted, uh, you know, any of the stuff that we were doing then, along with uh, two of Larry's bikes, 
Including Voodoo Chili that I've still got the chassis of that I'm gonna oh, wow. I'm gonna rebuild that. Cool. So um whole other story. Damn. Yeah. yeah, was Rivington the first shop you had in New York when you got here? Like yeah. like let's backtrack a second. You're not from New York, right? For people that don't know. Right. Uh, yeah, and that what was, was the journey like to get to New York. What brought you up here? And, and Psycho wasn't my shop. I mean, that belonged to that belonged to Stead. You were just an employee for that at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we were just together, you know, hanging out, making stuff, and uh -huh. and just building building cool shit. Um, but I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, mm. and um, you know, loved bikes and motorcycles and dirt bikes and go karts and and making just anything that I could when I was little. Uh, mostly at my grandmother's house, and uh, then uh, grew up there. Went to VCU, uh, went to art school mm -hmm. in um, illustration and painting, and uh, came to the city in '89. And um, you know, to get work in, in illustration and commercial uh, commercial art. So I was fortunate to get. Uh, a, a job at a store down in Soho doing fashion illustration. Um, you know, was in print every day in the newspaper, magazines, and stuff, and it all kind of fell into place. And I was also doing, you know, the fine art thing, like paintings and sculpture and stuff, and and um, you know, gallery type thing. Selling that work, like that's how you were also supplementing a living. Yeah, well, I had you know the full-time job doing the the illustration mm. gig, which was great. I mean, I, you know, I was so fortunate to get that right away. Right. And um, when I came to the city, I was also really lucky because I moved in with an old high school buddy of mine, Eric, that I'd grown up with. Okay. I was a musician, and, and he had already come up here ahead of me. So, you know, we had this apartment on 13th Street in the East Village. How old were you at the time? It was great. I mean, I was right out of college, so I guess I was like 20. Well, it took me an extra couple of years to get out, so I guess it was 24, okay. I don't know, something like that, um, whatever the math is. What but, a time, um, dude, to be 24 in the city at yeah, that yeah. time. We had a blast. Just fucking, yeah, that was awesome. Good, we had such a good time. And he was a musician, so, you know, we it was just a lot about going to shows and music and art. And, and um, then, uh, you know, after a couple of years of doing the commercial work, I just really wanted to uh, get back to more of my fine art thing. I left that, and a uh, few other, you know, jobs in between in the transition. But I was working, picked up with uh, initially the guys over at Sixth Street Specials. If you're familiar with them, mm -hmm. well, um, I mean, I don't know, but I know. Lower East Side, yes. yeah. Yeah, at the time it was Hugh and Demi that okay. owned that shop, and um, Hugh's still there. Demi passed away in '94, and. But, uh, you know, that was like the, the bike sort of hub of the East Village was Sixth Street Specials. And, um, you know, picked up with, with those guys, was hanging around over there, really into the bike stuff already, but sort of got back into it after a couple of years in the city. And, um, you know, it's... What were you riding in Virginia before you left? Um, that goes, I mean, it goes back to, to riding dirt bikes and stuff as a kid because I hadn't I hadn't ridden in a good while like through uh, college and then sort of picked back up on it when I got up here with a few triumphs okay. and um, you know in those circles with six street specials it was all about triumphs a little bit of Harley stuff but it was all about triumphs and BSAs and um, and then I met 
Larry at Sixth Street Specials, Hugh introduced me to Larry, and we started hanging out, and he was doing some work with Stag at the first Psycho Cycles, which was on Avenue C in the East Village, a little tiny, tiny storefront. You know, you could barely, you'd have to pull the bikes out just to get in the front door each morning. It was so tiny, <laughs> really the size of a bathroom. And, um, and that's, you know, that's really sort of the beginning of, of picking up with all those guys. Right. And, you know, phasing from sort of the, the British stuff into the, into the Harley stuff. And that was still only like 92. Wow. You know, because that first couple of years all compressed. Were you know, a lot of changes in a couple. Of years. Were you the young kid in that whole group? You were. The, you would have been the kid, right? Because I mean, Larry was a few years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because by this time, you know, he seemed so old at the time. But you know, <laughs> now that would have been me like years ago. Right, right. Um, yeah, because he was like forty something. You know. Right. Um, so. Was his name even Indian Larry yet? Like, I don't even know when he got that name. Yeah, he had, <laughs> initially, he was Sportster Larry. Oh, no shit. Because he had built a hot rod Sportster years earlier, and then he got, he became known for the Indian Chief that he had built that ended up in Iron Horse Magazine. And, right, um, that famous picture on the corner. And, oh. and then everybody started calling him Indian Larry. Okay. Yeah, so then that, that stuck. Cool. And then, you know, it kind of worked out that his profile, he kind of looked like an Indian anyway, <laughs> you know, so. Right, right. He definitely had to look for that name. I feel so. like that all the greats always start with Sportsters. <laughs> True and not yeah. born. Sportsters are triumphs, one of the two. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> when you were uh, working for the commercial art thing, was that like, uh, were you going to work every day wearing a collar? Or was it like? No, and this no, no, no. Is The art department. No, it was it was, it was <laughs> fashion illustration. Uh -huh. You know, for a couple of stores in Soho that, you know, it was all fashion stuff. And the art department was yeah. just, you know, be who you are. Yeah. And that was that was never a, a thing. Uh -huh. um, but you know, it just got to be really really restrictive and and just, you know, for any number of reasons, just got. Uh, the corporate machine moved on you know from that is. association right. from, from that situation but um you know picking up with with like steg and and larry it was initially you know through like the leather work and some custom stuff that i've done for myself that you know larry started kind of noticing oh you know we ought to keep this guy around you know as far as shop wise and and um you know then offered me a spot at Rivington Street when Psycho Cycles pretty soon moved down to the Rivington Street location, offered me a spot in there to work and and then that was kind of the you know, it all went from all went from there. So that was I guess third what was that, thirty years ago? Because that was probably ninety three. Alright. Is that what that adds up to? Um well ninety four would have been thirty, right? Ninety it's twenty twenty four yeah. now. I'm twenty yeah. uh, thirty four yes. and I was born in eighty nine. There you go. Yeah, so Oh you were born in eighty nine. Oh man. So yeah. that was the big catalyst that kept you around with them. They're like, This is the young guy, you know, we're kinda of feeling him out, but he could sure make the fuck out of some seats. Right. Well right. it was exciting. I mean there was such a um it's it's like it's a bigger conversation about like, you know, 
media and access to information and all that kind of thing when yeah. you like speed back 30 years it, it, you know, it wasn't the dark ages but all you knew was what was immediately around you yeah you know your your circle mm -hmm. even your part of town yeah was pretty much your world your bubble yeah because you didn't know what else was happening anywhere else yeah so um you know the, the british bike shop I mean, they were amazing. That's really where I got my, my start. And Hugh, great friend to this day, uh -huh. is, you know, just the best. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it was it was something different. It was something that I saw much more of, you know, potential for customizing. And it was, like, flashy and, yeah. you know, the whole, like, Harley vibe. And especially, you know, what was happening in the early days of, of Psycho Cycles. It was, it was just cool, you know, it was like, in a, yeah. but in a different way. And, um, you know, I really kind of connected with that. And Larry and I connected immediately and just kind of clicked on a creative level. And, and you know, it was, it was an exciting time. And, and like I said, you know, that was our, our world and what we were doing and what we were creating at the time just seemed that much more special because it was it was ours. And if anybody sort of came to visit or check it out, like, oh, wow, holy shit, we had no idea, you know, this. This was happening yeah um, especially for the brand new bikes that were coming out at the time you know like the bikes that you guys oh, were yeah. creating are so drastically different from the harley davidson that like a normal person would be used to seeing yeah right you know like you're just coming out of like the tour glide era right <laughs> which well, is, is like the like, absolute you're opposite you're talking like pre-internet also for sure you're talking yeah. like pre like so like a lot of people seeing bikes back then they may never have seen a fucking bike like that well i mean that really in initiated sort of this new york city style which was you know i mean uh Larry always really was specific about maneuverability and functionality and you know paring down all the parts that you don't need and and, um, and all the, which which kind of all culminated into this look and profile which is still a lot of kind of the way I build today but but um, it, it's not like where so many things today blend and styles just kind of wash into another because you instantly know what's happening in Japan right. as yeah. well as you know what's happening down the block you know um so you know the the california thing the east coast west coast thing or like the northeast any of those regional differences sort of started to to blend away and homogenize over the years where you know back then you had to kind of like travel to really see what else was happening and you really got focused on what you wanted to create for your own purposes and functionality and your own ideas weren't necessarily something that was stuck in the back of your head because you saw it, you know, flicking through your phone on the toilet and forgot yeah. that maybe you saw it, you know, and, and it just got regurgitated into something else. You know, it was genuinely originality. Right. And, um, you know, if you got your, your bike in a magazine, I mean, that was life-changing, you know, that right. was, because that exposure didn't exist in any other format. Right. It was the only way, you know, so it, it just meant even that much more. Right. But, um, yeah, it was, it was an exciting time and, and we really, um, all clicked and then moved into that other, when Steg moved the shop down to Rivington, um, it just kind of took off from there and it was really about that sort of, you know, hardtail chopper, really pared down, tight rake. New York City style out of that spot, but when you talk about like the other bikes that were around at the time, 
there were the, the, the stock bikes, obviously, in, in contrast to what we were doing, but then there were the other custom shops that had their own style that, that also, um, the differences were so much more pronounced because of visibility and, and the type of thing that, you know, that didn't exist back then. The shop, say, on the other side of downtown over in Soho, American Dream Machine, mm. that did like what we would call at the time like a yuppie soft tail stuff, right. right? But it was like it was huge the other side of the yeah. coin. I mean, not like we were enemies or anything, but it was just kind of that like rivalry. Right. And they were only a few blocks away, but it was like a different world. Right. A whole different world, a whole different, you know, circle of clientele and, and, um, you know, it sounds cheesy now, but just to say, like, you know, soft tail yuppies at the Easter, <laughs> Easter egg paint jobs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I Dude, feel you, like you, I you have... have described those early days in uh, with a line that I, I just stuck in my head my whole life since I read it in the Indian Larry book. You would describe those days with, uh, the early days with Larry as all Slim Jims and six packs. Hmm. Or no, all six packs and slim jims back then. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's what we would do. Like, uh, and if I ramble on, um, I edit out any of my rambling. Dude, I don't edit any of those. We're, right, yeah, we're yeah, here yeah. for the ramble. Yeah, we're here. That's what we're yeah, here for. The I'll, ramble. I'll wander. Dude, um, oh, can I can I stop you real quick though? Yeah. Uh, can oh, we just shit. turn this down a little? Oh, sorry. I kind of like it on a little bit, but sorry. just turn it down a bit. I think it's kind of cool. A little background. But uh, yeah, you would, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that because at the time I read it, I was like 22, 23, and I was just starting a motorcycle shop that time with my best friend, and it just it reminded me of the life I was living at that time. Mm -hmm. You describing your youth, just six packs and slim jims, you know. <laughs> well, that's what we would do at um, at Psycho is you know we we would work the day. And then typically Larry and I would stay after hours oh. and we'd go around to the bodega around the corner right. and get um, six pack of Bud and Slim Jims. Right. And that would be like dinner and like into the evening. And it's funny because I always hated cans. I like bottles. He hated <laughs> bottles and like cans. And he'd always say, you know, you need your aluminum intake. You know? <laughs> so he always, you know, was determined to have cans. But, That's um, fucking hilarious. But yeah, then we would stay, then he and I would always stay and do our, our personal project stuff. Right. And actually, this is, that's where this table, because he built this table then. Oh, shit. Yeah, this fab table. And I was telling you, I've still got the chassis for Voodoo Chili, which was one of his bikes that he built. That was purple one that he built back then. So when I, um, when I start kind of bringing that back to life, I want to do it on this table that was built on originally. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. fucking cool. So that? That'll be kind of cool. So that would have been still like, you know, nine, I don't know, 94, something like that. Wow. Because he built Voodoo Chili before Grease Monkey, which was then his, his last bike with the, right. with the nickel plated frame. Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorites. I know it was one of his yeah. earlier ones. But yeah, it was a great What bike. an iconic bike. That was a great bike. What, were all of Larry's like big bikes, like was Grease Monkey built on this table too? Yeah. Holy shit, yeah. that's wild. Yeah, all, all of them. Wow. That's yeah. just fucking cool. Yeah, they build off bikes, everything. Damn. Do you have any other pieces in here with like a big sentimental value story? Like, I mean, that table probably, probably as everything. good as it gets, but I mean, uh, yeah, I feel like there's got to be so many stories in here. 
Is there a standout yeah, in here? Yeah, lots of stuff. Besides this table, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, there's stuff. <laughs> it's too much. Yeah, it's too much. <laughs> I mean, there's this, yeah. there's this thing. I mean, this thing's kind of kind of cool. I think I, I don't know, I think I, I don't know if I was talking about this before. What is it? But it's just this, like, um, I might have shown a picture of this before, I don't know. But, I mean, it's it's completely just a random sort of machined assembly of, of brass and aluminum. And um, when we were on, at the shop on, on uh, the Lower East Side for a while, the next location was up in Hell's Kitchen in Midtown. And um, Larry came in one day, one morning, and, you know, he, he had things going on in his life. He had his demons that he was fighting. And, and um, you know, he would, he would get kind of, you know, in his head about stuff and, and had things to deal with on a personal level. And sometimes he would come in and, and just have to make art, just make a thing, mm -hmm. just, you know, do something that he didn't have to think about it. He could just kind of, you know, let his, let his mind just sort of wander and, and just get lost in a process for a while. Mm -hmm. And he came in that day and he was just dealing with some, some shit and, and made this. And he just, he just grabbed some random material. And if you're not, if you're not seeing it, you know, it's just these odd angles, crazy angles of, of like tapered, you know, brass and aluminum intersecting and plunged through he set this piece in the middle and you know plunged a hole into that and then pressed this into that and then cross milled this into that and machined that point on the lathe and then just threw it to the side and, and just had to leave for the day you know he was he was just like kind of in a in a state of mind that he just needed to like busy himself with something and that it's and it served its purpose and then he just had to go and, and to him, he, he couldn't leave. care if he ever saw so it. So it wasn't about this thing that I still have that he made and tossed aside. It was about the moment that he just had to take himself out of himself right. for an hour, right? And um, and kind of blasted this thing out. But so you know that means a lot to me. That's awesome. So that, that kind of did did, did Larry ever knew that you took it that day? I, he might have known that I still had it. Yeah. Probably did. I mean, you know, it, it was in my toolbox for years or whatever, but it just, you know, it sits on my desk. That's really but, cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, you couldn't like... talk to him in that moment. He just, he just needed to do it. He just needed to get out of his own head. Yeah. You know, and that's how he, that's how he would do it, by machining yeah. and creating how profound that one piece is you know like how much of a statement about life and living yeah yeah, yeah how much of a story when i seen it at that. first i was just like that's really hard to make right. <laughs> you probably had a i mean this was him being this was him being kind of mindless yeah you know, it was like a release uh-huh whereas maybe somebody else might um you know look at it like oh the calculations and the mind-bending shit i mean this was him just sort of like freeing his mind for, sure. for a moment yeah and um you know something that he 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 could know and do and and kind of ground ground himself a little bit so yeah that is really cool man but yeah i got um lots of little odds and ends around that are meaningful you know from our time together yeah yeah and stuff yeah i i mean i never met him but um a friend of mine 
towed a bike for him one time and he said, you know, he was obviously in the passenger seat of his tow rig for like an hour. And he, he described him as the most intelligent person he ever spoke to. He's like, you were talking to someone else. Like it was a, a very intelligent mm -hmm. guy. That's, that's, uh, yeah. Just something yeah. I'll never, like the description I'll never forget. Yeah. From, from someone at that time. I mean, you know, honestly, and I, I don't care. I mean, I could sit and talk about Larry all night. Um, but because he was just that unique of an individual, you mm -hmm. know, because it was the, like the, the character, right? The, you know, the charisma and that over the top personality, because, you know, that's, that's what he loved. It's what he loved to put out there and project was, you know, um, I think after the, the hard life that he had lived and the intensity of his, his, his existence early on and throughout his, his years, um, he really latched on to that kind of lightheartedness and he loved it. He loved like the carnival sideshow type mm -hmm. vibe, you know, and, and lived it. I mean, he was a, a part of the Coney Island sideshow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and, but, you know, but, but mentally, but psychologically, he, he had so many levels to it. And he was super intelligent because he would, just absorb anything around him mm. and information excited him and he didn't deny an opportunity to learn ever so it was interesting in a very literal sense that you could be in a group of, of people you know we could be at a, at, a, at a bike event at some bar someplace or at like a, a gallery opening in, in soho or in chelsea and he would feel just at, as at home talking to people you could be talking to a brain surgeon. You could be talking to, um, you know, a, a teacher, a kindergarten teacher. You could be talking to her. And he would have something to connect with them about what they do and what they know. Mm -hmm. He would have some bit of information locked away right. that he could then connect. He wouldn't just, you know, talk to anybody. He wouldn't just kind of glaze over and not know, you know, what you were talking about. Right. And... Um, and he would just store information like that. But then again, by the you know by the same token, he couldn't make a cup of coffee for himself. <laughs> couldn't figure it out. That's fucking hilarious. Couldn't figure it out. But he could do rocket surgery all day long. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But it was funny. Yeah, it was that kind of like you know, um, odd little sort of incongruous mix of personality where some of the you know, most basic stuff, and even like emotionally too, you know, some of the most basic things that we, you know, most people take for granted um, would would stump it, you know, would, would like really be sort of a, a stumbling block, right. just basic life stuff. Right. But if you'd elevate it into this whole other sort of level of, of existence and, and operate up there, he was totally comfortable. Right, hmm. right. And you know, in, in, he loved like um, philosophy, and he looked at the world in you know like a mystery. Like you know, the que I mean, people have different opinions on the whole question. It started out as a question mark, but the question cross. You know, mm -hmm. when he wanted to add the iron cross to the bottom and make it a question cross. But he started out it was just a regular question mark. You know, with the dot at the bottom, uh, using that as an image with his name because it wasn't as aggressive as a thing where um, you know people have different 
different thoughts and opinions about question everything and you know right, right. Uh, trust no one and all that kind of vibe where it was literally um, him expressing the fact that he just doesn't know what's going on right. on like a you know uh, bigger you know level than than, than us was like, he religious like, like in, was in, it like him in surrendering uni- to like god universal terms right um religion opposite of religious okay <laughs> um you know he, he would be um like what's what's the word um not religious but um spiritual spiritual yeah okay very spiritual organized religion he hated hated um i mean i think he was he was raised in a catholic school um hated church dude i got a funny question was he into aliens please say please tell me yes i don't don't know okay but um it kind of sounded like that he was on like a lifelong quest of information like yeah yeah like if there is there's obviously a million things that we don't understand and it seemed like that he had the personality type to need to understand it right like to the point of where it it could be problematic right well i mean in terms of like maybe sidetracking him or derailing him yeah i mean he wanted you know so it was like admitting that we just don't have it figured out right yeah that's all right. it was. so that that was kind of the root of the whole question mark thing right. it was like i don't i don't know right you know why god why god put me here right i got no idea i wish more people i don't know what take I'm doing. that so, attitude toward life honestly yeah, so it was really just <laughs> really kind did. of a way of saying i mean ask him does he know about bike stuff and he'll go you're damn right i do right but does he know about you know like what does life mean no fucking idea. Right, right. And that's that's what he was just admitting is just the reality of the fact that, you know, we don't we don't know what this is all about. It's bigger than us. Yeah. You know, on a, like a universal level is what I was trying to say, um, mm-hmm. and definitely on a on a spiritual level, and um, and you know it would it would manifest itself in in different ways. You know, like we were doing the that um, was the last build off we were doing in Sturgis. And um, he was supposed to go on a uh, photo shoot with Michael Lichter. And we were just gonna go together and I was just kind of gonna ride along, but he was meeting Lichter to shoot one morning. We were gonna meet at uh, Full Throttle or something, run out, to, ride out towards uh, Bear Butte or whatever it was. And, um, and he wasn't showing up and wasn't showing up. And I was there and Michael was there. And it was really weird because at that point towards the end, I mean, he was all about like, scheduling and doing the right thing and like being on top of his commitments and he was totally clean really on the ball too, right? yeah and, so and it was like clean at that at yeah. that point for a few years right and um so it was really strange it was <clears throat> unusual and then michael just said well let's just go ahead and you know we'll, we'll just shoot some stuff together and i guess we'll just catch up with larry later oh hey guys i'm here to interrupt the show I wanted to interrupt the show and let you know this is also brought to you by TheBumpShopBackroom.com, The Bump Shop Diaries on Instagram. Go hit up my boy Rodney for all the coolest vintage merch and unfindable stuff anywhere. Uh, He's also the only place that uh, you could get Crazy Gentleman merchandise from. And we're also giving some stuff away. 
We're giving some of his hardtail blend coffee away. And whatever merch pack thing, idea he's got going on on the website. And we're giving away a Crazy Gentleman hoodie. Uh, whoever wins this hoodie is going to be the first owner of one. I have not even gotten one yet. So, here we go. Back to the panhead valve covers. Shake it up. I don't know if you guys could hear this on the podcast, they're shaking it up or not, but YouTube could see it. I'm reaching behind my back here, shaking these things up. And here we go. Number 12. Number 12. Uh, since I am in a time crunch here, I got the computer inside already because I'm uploading parts of this episode as we speak because I got to run tonight. What was it? Number 12. Woo! Number 12. <laughs> Perfect. Number 12, dude, is Chunks. Chunks, number 12, dude. Um... Yo, congratulations, Corey. He's another long-time listener, dude. He's listened to him all since the beginning. He's a long-haul truck driver out of Indiana, dude. So uh, that's awesome. That is awesome. I know he's a fan of Rodney's, too. Uh, the perfect, perfect winner for that prize, man. Uh, that is so That is so cool. Uh, anyways, man, back to the regularly scheduled program, Mr. Paul Cox. See you guys. Enjoy the rest of this episode. And um, so when I, I, I saw Larry later over where we were set up, and I was like, man, that was weird. Are you okay? You know, what happened? And he goes, yeah, he just got out that morning, and he was... Cool. Oh. Yeah, so he was all in his head that morning. Yeah, so he was just really, really in his head that morning about, you know, everything that was going on because he loved, you know, the level that he had gotten to, but it was a lie. It was intense. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And um, he had gone, he had ridden, I forgot exactly where he said that he went, but he rode up to the highest mountain that he could find, got off the bike, and just put his hands up and yelled at the sky like, why, God? <laughs> <laughs> Why me? You know? <laughs> and it's just something he needed to go do. Yeah. You know, for whatever that that meant to him right. emotionally at the time, he just had to go do that. And um, whether he got an answer that day or not, I don't know. Well, one of my uh, favorite pictures of you and him, both individual pictures though was possibly this day where you, when you were, my favorite picture is when you're on the Berserker and you're looking back, mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure Lickler took the picture mm -hmm. and it was at Bear Butte. Mm -hmm. Was it that day? That's when he was on a mountain yelling at God. Right. Oh, he was actually there at that time and you guys were doing those pictures. That's, oh, that's why I wasn't with us. No shit. But then uh, I believe later that day there were some more pictures of you guys together, no? Probably or not. Yeah, probably. Maybe right here. Okay. Yeah. That's so cool. That w that picture was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Mm -hmm. Like, what was that day like? And now, it was, now, it was now, accidental. No. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just going to be riding along. I mean, Larry was. I mean, um, Michael was shoot shooting Larry that day. Okay. And um, you know, and he was ready to go, and we were you know we were just 
having fun. Let's let's go for a ride anyway. Right. And um, and he got those, you know, those couple of shots. Just you know, hanging it. We were just out riding, and I looked back at Michael, and he had his camera, you know, hanging it down off the side of his bike because he was riding by himself as well. Okay. And just had his camera in his in his hand, and uh, you know, grab some some shots when we were riding. Cool. So, All yeah, of that stuff that you described about Larry, like his endless curiosity for life, is that one of the things that keeps your fire going so good uh, in your older age? Like the, the, the more you, I mean, it's hard to keep this fire alive like you have mm -hmm. for fucking, like what have you been doing this for like 40 years now? You know, 30 years? Yeah, like is that one of the things, uh, do you have that like burning curiosity similar to Larry in you? 100%. Um, Okay, 100%. In a different way, you know, I just say, yeah, but in a different way, because um, I still, you know, if I'm in here doing a 14, 16 hour day, I still am excited the next morning about getting back in here. Right. It's, you know, the, the all nighters hurt a little bit more than they used to. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. Because I mean, I really got in the, in the habit of doing a lot falling back on a lot of those. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, you know, the excitement, the curiosity, all of this stuff, like all the different phases of things that I do in the shop, like we were talking about, you know, whether it's paint or engraving or motor building or, you know, even just the most basic welding, every time I'm doing it, I'm, I'm learning something new. Right. And, you know, I mean, people are different, they have different personalities, but, you know, you'll see people that maybe will do something a few years and they'll feel like, yeah, you know, I'm awesome at that, or, you know, that's my thing or whatever. I'll I'll never feel that way about any of those. Right. Because each day, each time, I just I hope that I do it I hope I do it a little bit better than last time. I hope who I'm doing it for digs it. I hope I dig it. And um, it's always an unknown. So it keeps it exciting. Right. You know, I never feel like I never have that feeling walking in here like been there, done that kind of kind of vibe. Yeah. It's always exciting. Do you feel like you're on top of your game right now? Best you've ever been? Or do you feel like there was a heyday at one time? You know, I mean, that's tomorrow. Where you were on your game. Yeah. No, I feel like it continues to grow. I mean, the excitement that I was just kind of describing is feeling each time, I'll be like, oh, man, I never realized I could do it that way. Or, you know, that works a little bit better. Yeah. Or that, you know, different type of rod, rod or a different angle on the engraver or, you know, some new trick about closing off a a port and early you know knucklehead motor cases that you know that helps in the in a modern build you know any little thing that you that you learn there's still so much to to pick up and to you know tweak and to refine um you know i i hope to not think that i peaked years ago and it's all downhill from here <laughs> If that's what you're saying. No, no, I'm not I think accusing literally you. literally what you said. No, no, I'm but, not I'm, I'm asking you how you exciting. feel about it. I don't think you have. I think your best days are ahead of you. you yeah, know, I, hope, I hope so. Because, I was curious how you felt about it. You know? you know, I mean, there's that sort of, that, you know, quintessential search for for, for perfection and, and that kind of thing that I don't think, um, you know, we'll die before we achieve that. No. I hope because then you're done. You know, then that's, that's pretty much once you hit once you plateau, right. it's like, what's the point? You know, I mean, I kind of, I try to keep my hands in so many different things, so many different aspects of, 
what become motorcycles, but also what lead into other things that I that I do, other peripheral stuff creatively, that that really keeps it exciting and keeps it a constant search, you know, right, and a constant journey, because the you know the fun is in the journey. I mean, it's done like the bike, the red one we were looking at out there. I love checking it out now that it's finished, but I'm not thinking about it anymore. Right. You know, I mean, I really walking by it. It's it's really, you know, satisfying to look at it, but the the excitement was in the whole you know journey up to that point, and um, you know that's where you have the opportunity to to learn a little bit something different every single time. Would you consider yourself a builder that likes building more or riding more? Oh, I still love both because I definitely talk to builders and no builders that either you know ride a little or don't ride anymore or just right. kind of phased out of it but they still have the job right it's right. just a job i love building what i'm building thinking man this is going to be fun to fun ride right and how cool it's going to look you know sitting outside or how it's going to feel because of this little tweak with the front end or or you know whatever because i always want them to also feel as perfect as they can and a little bit better each time you know with the geometry of the seating position with the, the front ends with the you know um tire size bar height whatever it is just the contours of the seat so i'm not kind of working off a grocery list filling an order and sending it out the door and now uh, you go have fun with it right because everything that i build for somebody i look at it like I'm gonna have fun with it first. Right. So I want it to feel great because I love riding, you know. And, you know, I've been fortunate to do a couple of things these past few years with um, a couple of factories like uh, Indian and BMW. And um, man, I, I like the newer bikes too, you right. know, because I never really yeah. spent much time on them, but. Um, are you looking at those through a whole it's a, new lens? Like, it's a cool I contrast. can't wait to carve that thing up, you know, like, is it, you know, because the shape of, you know, like a standard straight leg frame or a wishbone frame, like, it's kind of, you don't really get too crazy far away from that. Are you looking, I mean, just in general for Harleys and monkeying around with them, mm -hmm. but like, are you looking at the new bikes? Like, this is a whole new thing that I can't wait to dive uh, into, you know? Like, like part of your creative journey. Dish this tank this way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, are you looking at their their brand new, uh, you know, R, what is it, R20? R19? R18? I don't know. I don't know all the models. What, the R18? What, yeah. you mean the BMW? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because that's the, uh, I'm actually on the third one of those that I'm mm. working on uh, customizing. And, um, what I what I really kind of dig though, as opposed to taking something like that that's brand new, mm -hmm. and has all the bells and whistles, and then just saying, oh, you know, I'm I'm a bare bones chopper guy, so all this is gonna go in the trash, and fuck it, you know, I'm just gonna make it like whatever it is that I do. Sure. Um, but in contrast to that, I kind of really like the challenge of of you know uh, embracing some of what's beautiful and amazing about the, the engineering of some of these new bikes mm -hmm. and then trying to make it cooler, more hidden, you know, more streamlined, more unique, more, you know, my, my style, but not just, 
you know, ship can it all and make it just right. just another, you know, rigid chopper. Still retaining all its um, functionality. Yeah, because I think that's kind of the, the the fun of it, you know, to retain as much functionality. Yeah, sure. Right, right. Um, you know, so I, I find it challenging and, and, and really exciting to kind of work with the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I, I've got my first new bike. Uh, I never thought I'd have ever a new bike, but uh, in 2020. And the way I describe it is, it's fucking just hard to hate those new bikes, man. It, re- <laughs> it really is. Like, a lot of guys yeah. like to hate on They're hard to hate, man. Like, yeah. The I don't mind. I don't mind crazy. it at all, man. You know, you know, especially you know, riding riding around here. I mean, switching out from a rigid to the um, the Indian Chief or the BMW, the R18, they're three completely different rides. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all feel different. They all different, do different jobs, and that's what I appreciate about them. And it kind of goes back to um, you know, years ago, like if I'm if you're talking to Larry about motorcycles and about, you know, um, brands and like shitting on sportsters or fuck that it's a Jap bike or whatever, or whatever. I mean, the, the beautiful thing is that they're motorcycles and they're fun, whether it's a dirt bike or a sportster or a Yamaha or whatever. Right. Then you can decide what you want to have sitting in your garage. But you know, there's just no reason to like to, to shit on them because they're, they're all for different purposes. They're all fun. And, um, you know, it's just about motorcycles. Right. And, you know, it's, it's like the Sportster thing. I mean, those were, you know, those were race bikes. Right. You know, right. back in the, yeah. They're not yeah, just yeah. girls' bikes, you know? I mean, right. it's, a, it's like a stereotypical old, you know, bullshit comment. Sure. From years ago. But, um, but it's, it's kind of like a good example, you know? I mean, those were, those were hot rods. Right, right. You know? Um, you know, so different bikes serve a different purpose. And just like new stuff compared to old stuff. Right. It could all be I like how you described that. You could decide what's in your garage, uh, which we all do. But uh, yeah, I like I say, man, I've never twisted a throttle on a motorcycle that I hated. You know, it's like, <laughs> right? it's always fun when you right. go like that. Oh, sure. you know? But uh, yeah, yeah, just choose unless, what's in unless your Unless somebody did a shitty job building it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a great right. death trap. That's true. You know. That's true. I mean, that, it's like, you know, when you talk about... Um, building and, and we were talking about like the journey and kind of tweaking things and say something for example like setting up a foot clutch mm-hmm. right when you talk about like somebody building a shitty bike right um every single time it's like just trying to get that subtle little you know that transition just right a little bit more in each bike that i build you know where oh it feels good you get used to it that's great okay you know this is a fun one but then the next time thinking, you know, if I just like raise the pedal a little bit or just, you know, move that pivot point a little lower so it's got a bit more travel or whatever, so that it's it's just a tiny bit better than the last one. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's just say one example. Mm-hmm. Because it's really easy to set them up crappy. Yeah. And then it, it makes the, the whole experience suck. For sure. Yeah. You know, and then and then something like you know, a jockey shift or a foot clutch or whatever gets a bad rap. And, you know, over the years, it's always like, oh, you know, no, that's horrible. You know, you'll kill right. yourself. Right. Well, it wasn't set up right. Right. You know. Do you run a lot of uh, N1 shift drums in your foot clutches? I, I do. And it's it's kind of um, cool thinking back on that because I could, I could figure out the year probably if I thought about it. But when they first came out with that setup, they were experimenting 
with it and hadn't really you know offered it yet and they sent us one oh, okay. to to experiment with and they hadn't even like put them in production i mean they probably had like a couple like a handful of them and um and they sent us one to try out i think it was after it was after larry had died i think we were just um soon after that as legacy okay right? the legacy show and um thought it was the coolest thing it's like why didn't somebody do this years ago <laughs> yeah you know uh, Burton, those guys came up with that, and um, so yeah, we got to we got to try out. I don't know what what bike it went into. Might have been Brooklyn Beatnik or something. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, we tried out one of the first prototypes of those N1 shift drums, but um, I I still use them. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like the coolest fucking thing ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it is, and and again, it's like everything else. You got to remember that that's <laughs> that that's what you're riding at the time, right? Right. And uh, you know, sometimes you'll you'll still default back into thinking, you know, all the way down, and you're in first, and you go to pull away around a corner, and you're like, oh fuck, I'm in neutral. Right. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, super cool idea, and you know, they've started uh, putting out a few of these four speeds again. And a limited run of four speeds. True so four got, speeds, not six and fours. No, yeah, the four speeds. Okay. Yeah, they did them for a while, uh -huh. phased out of it, and then they've they've been producing a, a limited run of them. So I've got a, a few of them here for builds. Cool. So I, I jumped on a couple of those while they were making those because I mean they're great. I mean it's a, you know made by Baker, you know it's bulletproof, and you're not even gonna have to think twice about it. But in the in the customs in the choppers, I like four speeds. They're you know. The six into fours that they do are awesome, especially if you're doing a lot of like highway miles and you really right. want, you know, um, to keep that first gear low and then have a gen, you know, an actual overdrive. But it's a longer unit right. by a little, like, yeah, it I looks think a about, little silly. about a sticks out. inch. Um, so it's just physically a bigger unit. So when they started making the, the four speeds, it's like that was like a no-brainer for me, mm, yeah. and the four-speed is just such a tight package and a nice, you know, little chopper. Yeah. Um, that you know, and then with their their tweaks and finesse that they do, mm. it's just kind of the ultimate transition and a transmission that I like to use. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, well, who wouldn't want a brand new transmission to just dump it and not have to yeah. worry about it? I know like, the guys that have the 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 money for them. It's just like it is. It's a no-brainer. It's really a no no brainer, yeah. especially with the price of trying to score ratchet top four speeds at swap meets now. Mm -hmm. Like, they're kind of out of control. All these old parts are out of control. Yeah, now, I think you know. Yeah, fifteen hundred to two grand for yeah, a dude. ratchet top. Yeah. Damn. It's like I I got uh I'm piecing a panhead together now. I got a ratchet top, a complete ratchet top, uh for seven fifty, and I thought it was the it's the best score I've seen in fucking years. Mm -hmm. Like you can't really touch them for under a grand anymore. Yeah, you know, I, don't I guess know. so. I don't know. I'm kind of cheap when it comes to buying used parts too. <laughs> I always think of when prices were down low, man. I'm like, why can't they be that cheap anymore? I know. I gotta dig you through and see what I see what I got and pull it out and organize everything. Yeah. You know, you get those like boxes of carburetors and like <laughs> boxes of, you know, rocker arms. And, do you do uh, like eBay and shit like, do you sell a lot of parts? No, I mean, I'll put something out there every now and then, just kind of randomly when I realize it's been sitting around for a while. But um, no, no, I don't, I don't focus on used parts. 
Just so, whatever we see randomly on the Instagram. Yeah, I just don't have time for, for any of the other. I mean, I'm still trying to put my website back up and, and redo that. <laughs> right. Uh, took, I, I got as far as taking the other one down and <laughs> put another one back up yet. Yeah. Because I still need to do, do that myself too. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you can. It's easy. It's fun. Yeah. Because it's fun. It's just another thing to kind of get into. Yeah, yeah. But gets the brain flowing. You save a few hours at night and, and get that get that set back up because I've kind of got it built and loaded with a lot of um, stuff you know a lot of bikes and things I've just got to uh, finish it launch it yeah do you still sell those airbag kits for the uh, rigid seats yeah the rigid air kits yeah yep yeah mm -hmm. oh cool yeah um, do you do any other products they just sent one uh, down to Paul at bare knuckle oh no shit yeah what's up Paul this is brought to you by bare knuckle by the way <laughs> you guys will get that in the intro <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, are you going to Mom Tried? Uh oh no, I'm not no. gonna. No, I'm not gonna make that. Okay. Um, that's soon. That's right. Yeah, it's like yeah, three weeks. Now. A few weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, not gonna be able to do that. I'm just getting to the point that um, I could try to get out to some things because we've had so much going on the past few years with getting this, working on the building, mm -hmm. and um, you know, getting the shop set up and building out the shop. And like I showed you guys around the, the, the building that, you know, is my, my wife Ann's whole project that she's doing, you know, the rest of the building where my shop is, uh, like I was showing you guys, is all going to be uh, artist studios, retail, coffee shop, art gallery, all kinds of things. Her, her studio for jewelry and metalsmithing. And then my shop. And the cool thing is that, you know, she's had this vision for years to uh to find a place that she could do this and do this whole artist collaborative kind of thing yeah and bring creative you know like-minded people together and i just you know it happened to work out that, that i'm also a, a part of it with the bike shop and um and it's just really really cool that you know this place worked out right in the center of town in port jervis and you know it's going to be kind of an important you know art center for the area yeah once she's she's done with it and we're you know really close to her getting the doors open and, and getting people set up in here and you know it's going to be an amazing event space and all kinds of stuff so yeah it's gonna yeah. it's gonna be cool dude it's gonna pump lifeblood right into this town <laughs> yeah i think it's, i think it's awesome yeah it's yeah. a sleepy little town and they've been so supportive i mean you know they've really been um they've really been awesome about being behind her and and us on doing this and um you know it's it's an exciting time around here it's gonna be cool yeah you i know? mean for, like there's so many listeners right now like when this is all done man this is like you're building so many people's dreams dude yeah it's, it's cool as hell yeah like like i said i mean she's wanted to do this for a really really long time and i'm just helping out you know however i can with some, <laughs> yeah. some of the uh structural stuff but um yeah we're, we're getting there dude i just thought of something uh, you want to talk about it now but remind me after like my memory you guys i got a cool thing i think you'd like Okay. A little art, like some art stuff. I like cool I things. I think it'd be going to the right home. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm just, just jogging my memory. Anyways, okay. All uh, right. Yeah, just don't let me forget that. Just remind me. All right. Um, I will. I will. But, uh, yeah, so what was, um, what, what year did you wind up leaving New York City to come here? Oh. Um, yeah, we were kind when of we were all, stuck in the 90s for start? a while there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, ready to go back. Yeah, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I mean, we could pick up where we left off. I just don't exactly remember where in the 90s we yeah, yeah, yeah. we got lost in yeah that we only tornado. we only got up to like 94 <laughs> right, right. 
Um, I do have a question for you. Uh, so it kind of seems like that you guys were in New York City and you guys were very content where you were at. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't seem like the world at large was too particularly important. Was there a year of where it was like all of a sudden we need to go to Sturgis? We need to bring some bikes to Sturgis? Or was that like much later? Hmm. Or was there like that desire to like go out and travel and just because that's like such a kind of feels like a prominent thing in today of mm -hmm. where like everybody's like we are like we're ready to go out and meet people on bikes. Yeah. You know, like we want to ride bikes and we want to meet these West Coasters or we want right. to meet these. Uh, people you know, from around the world, yeah. anywhere, you yeah. know, like we're ready to go, right? Right, and it kind of seems like, um, and not in any type of bad way, but you know, like this was like a huge creative outlet for you guys, you mm -hmm. know, like well, you were touched on it earlier, really? like everyone had their regional thing, right? And, and the world wasn't as homogenized mm -hmm. as, it, as it is now, right. Was there a point in time because you guys were really on the forefront of this, like in the 90s, yeah. Then Discovery Channel blew up, but you guys were on the forefront before that. Like, was there a time when you guys were doing that New York City style chopper thing that you said, like, like Rick was saying, like, let's go to Sturgis, let's go mm -hmm. to Moon Eyes, like, let's show the world what we're doing here. Right. Was there a point in time you remember that happened? Well, um, I remember Larry going down to Daytona because it was, you know, just uh, I think he'd finished. It might have been with Voodoo Choi, <laughs> and. Um, his friend uh, Grace, she had her, her new red pickup truck. It was like a, I forget what it was. But put the bike in the back of that and um, went down to Daytona because it was more like, yeah, he kind of enjoyed it. You could do some riding in the sunny weather, but it was more like, you know, for the benefit of the shop, like advertising. Right. Um, I was never really big into going to shows, going to big events. You know, not a big fan of crowds. Um, but, um, you know, he would do a couple of those things. It was mostly, it was really like our local stuff. Because like I said, you know, that was kind of like our bubble, our world. We would do swap meets, right? Uh -huh. That was kind of like a big deal. Like we would go to like uh, over to Jersey or uh, Pennsylvania or upstate or out to Long Island and, and you know, do swap meets and take a, a bike or two or like local bike shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and you could feel like you were achieving something, but... It was only in like your little, right. your you know, bubble of the world, your little zone, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, you know, between like Brooklyn and Queens and and Manhattan, right? And um, but back and then, that's when you got but a lot was, of your customers too. It oh was, yeah, it was, it was all, all local. local. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the day that some some guys came from over from Japan, uh -huh. and I think through the magazines were aware of the shop, and actually came to the shop from Japan. That I mean, that blew our minds. <laughs> yeah, it's right. like you're kidding me. Yeah, you're for, and you knew about us yeah. over there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that was insane. You found this yeah. place, and now you know. I mean, we're back and forth in Yokohama, like it's no big deal. I mean, right, going to Moon right. Eyes, I'd gone a few times, a few times, and then I think the last time I went to Moon Eyes, it was literally like a, a week, like an overnighter, you know. Right which was not a good idea oh, <laughs> to, go to, to go to Japan for like a day. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was the worst idea. Um, you know, because we're so used to this like global, you know, availability of, you know, information and events and right. the ability to, you know, um, to, to access it all. 
But yeah, when those guys showed up from Japan at the door, uh, we just thought it was a, the craziest thing. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and guess. Was it Silversmith Finn that you're talking about? No, no, showed no. Up? no that was much later. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he had told that story when I had him on with Peter Guns. Yeah, that was that. That was once we were. That was when we were in Brooklyn. Okay. Because he came around. I want to say, because we moved into the Brooklyn shop because we had probably three or four shops before that in 2000. Okay. And after we had been in a few different places, a couple of different places in Manhattan. Now, what I'm talking about was still on Rivington Street. Wow. And, you know, all we dealt with was just like really downtown. And I think Steg had just chased some bomb down the street with a hammer or <laughs> run off a drug dealer from the corner. But we had like a deal with them to stay, you know, off of our little stretch of sidewalk. And um, <laughs> he's still chasing people around with hammers. But, um, but yeah. You know, so we had the shop there, moved up to to um, uh, Hell's Kitchen and took over English Don's old shop because he was there for a while and then let it go. And then we took his place when we left Rivington. And then from there, moved over to a little shop in Brooklyn. Um, I guess the former tenants were trying to burn us out of there and lit the place on fire and smashed a car into the roll down gate one night. Holy shit. And then we had to like, you know, <laughs> guard the place until we actually moved over to another spot that was available like a block over that was a lot more easy a lot easier to deal with in south in the south side of uh, williamsburg um below the williamsburg bridge was like south 8th street okay and um we're there for a while and then that's when psycho cycles you know sort of phased out and um and then i moved over to uh Sixth Street Specials was still over on Sixth Street in East Village, right. and got a, a spot with Hugh over there for um, a couple of years. Okay. You know, doing doing my own work, and just you know, from from my my personal projects and stuff. And so then that that brings us back up to um, to 2000 when you were asking about uh, June right. Silversmith Finn, right? Right. right? Um, when he came over to the new shop in Brooklyn. Um, we got a few friends together that, you know, were interested in doing a shop again, mm -hmm. including, uh, Larry, a friend of ours, Jamie, that is a tattoo artist and, um, another, uh, friend of ours, Peter, that was going to be doing paint and myself and, um, then, uh, let's see, Kenny, that was working down at American Dream Machine, and another guy, Gerard, that was doing some managing down there, and Kano, who was also working as a mechanic at American Dream Machine. All of us came together and started the shop on North 14th Street in Brooklyn in 2000. Okay. Would that be what was known as Gasoline Alley at that time? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that was, um, the name, Larry didn't want anything in his name. Mm -hmm. Like that was a whole different mindset at the time. He just wanted to, um, you know, not not deal with that. He just wanted to do his own thing, but have it called something else. And um, it was even like weird because as much as we wanted to just say like whatever, whatever choppers or you know, it from a business standpoint at the time it felt like 
you were alienating like other work. I mean, this was like discussions right. that we would have. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now you like you wouldn't give a fuck. You just call it whatever you thought. Right. Um, but but Gasoline Alley just sounded sort of like a little cool, a little neutral, a little Motorhead, you know, a little and you know stuck for a while. Right. And um, and eventually, you know, with with some of the visibility that Larry was getting when he first did uh, Motorcycle Mania with with uh, Jesse James, when mm -hmm. he invited him to be on that, and uh, you know a few other things, then he kind of came around to wanting to call the shop, you know, Indian Larry. Um, what do you call it? Indian Larry? Yeah, Indian Larry. Indian Larry. Just Indian Larry, like yeah, just motorcycles. Indian, I'm trying whatever. to think what it was at first. Yeah, just Indian Larry. Ah, uh, yeah. Did he kind of do that as like uh, after the motorcycle mania thing? He realized like it would be way more financially beneficial to have things associated more with him, mm -hmm. being that he was the guy in the spotlight at the time? Yeah. I, I mean, I would assume that was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just that it made made more sense. Right, right. You know. So every time you guys move shops, was it like, <laughs> all right, we got a battle. So we got a battleship oh, leave. God, you must have like, Did you guys have like a, a guy on call <laughs> with like a fucking oh, flatbed yeah. or something to wheel this shit out? Like a rigger to get all this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was always a nightmare. I mean, because I counted, I think this is my 11th shop. Uh-huh. And it just goes that way. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't, you can't own anything in the city. Yeah. And, um. And you know people are so like flaky, and landlords are flaky, and you think you can do whatever you want, and the next thing you know you can't. And, right. Um, you know we never had any money, and yeah, it was just all you know pickup trucks and friends, and yeah, we would have to get a, a you know riggers every now and then with a flatbed, right. and they would chain up and drag the lathe across the sidewalk and into the street <laughs> and up in the you know yeah you're having a fucking heart bed. attack the whole time and then we have to go to a new spot and set up the airlines and yeah run the power and we do all that ourselves you know fun because it was never suitable and you know we would maybe like trade with guys like you know have an electrician friend that trade him a gas tank or a frame to do the electrical or we would just do it ourselves yeah right, right. you know because larry knew all that stuff and i picked up all that stuff so we would just have to you know wire and plumb our own shops right every time and you could pretty much do whatever you wanted for the most part I yeah mean, you know they would just so they'd get the rent and wouldn't really care what you were doing right right you know? yeah i guess that's the one good part about new york city is it's like all industrial building anyway mm -hmm. you know yeah um yeah. I, uh, I feel like I had another question there, but just the one more. What? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? What would you say throughout all these years, man? Like right up until right now, um, would there be a time period that was your favorite, or that like in your head you kind of romanticize as like that was mm -hmm. those were the days, you know? Yeah. Was there was there a period of time that you look back um, at that? You know, there were chunks of time in different ways mm -hmm. that I would say yes to that question, but in, in different ways. And, you know, going back to where we were first talking about, um, you know, that energy and that kind of excitement in like, say, 93, 94, you know, I mean, we were all riding around New York City like a Dave Mann painting, you know, all full leathered out on rigid choppers, going into bars with everybody knew you and you know, just rolling up right on the sidewalk at the front door of every place we went. And, um, you know, knew the 
the lay of, of Manhattan, like the back of your hand. And, you know, it was just an amazing time. And then we get into the, uh, the 2000s and, you know, you get into the whole Discovery Channel days and, you know, what a blast that was. I mean, how fun right. was that? Traveling the world, right. basically, you know, getting paid to, paid to, to travel that. the world. Uh, you know, I mean, that it was almost like the, the polar opposite of a decade earlier where I didn't really know what was over the East River. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, or what was past, you know, the Hudson. Right. I shouldn't say the East River because we we did make it to Brooklyn and Queens <laughs> every now and then. But um but yeah, so Yeah, I mean taking planes to Japan for a day is a far cry from six packs and slim gyms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's pretty cool. But um, yeah, no, they, those were some in, incredible, incredible times. And the thing is, you know, there would be chunks of time that would just be sort of peaceful and really not many highs and lows. Those early days, the excitement of like the discovery days, different times in between, you know, there were probably a lot more lows than highs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. You know, I mean, sometimes we're really like, you know, edgy and, and sketchy and violent, you know, and, and really like um, deeply in, intense mm -hmm. years, you know, with the shop and the people that you were around and, you know, the environment at the time mm -hmm. in, those, in those circles. And, um, you know, but as human beings, you know, we, we tend to remember a lot of the fun stuff and right. yeah. a lot of the exciting times. Yeah, but it's all, it, you know, life balances out one with the others. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you had said you you still love riding. Are mm -hmm. you are you like a long distance kind of guy? Like, will you get out and just do a solo trip, or like local riding is what you're talking? Um, have you ever been a long distance like? Oh sure, have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Load up the bike it's, and leave for a while. I mean, it's been a long it's been a long time. Mm -hmm. More from just like a time standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I feel like we've been bouncing all over the place. I'm sorry if I, if, oh, I, no. if I get... No, that's totally This is gold. Um, Trust me. It's me. Yeah. It's me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I did a thing with... Uh, with um, what was it? It wasn't Iron Horse anymore. It was when they, I guess, they became... The horse. And they were doing the Stampede. Yeah, oh, yeah. The horse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, from, like, Arizona to North Carolina, mm -hmm. a couple of days ride there. It was great. Um, we had used to have a family place, my wife's family up in New Hampshire, and um, she and I had ridden up there together, uh, and I would always ride up on the bike, you know, it's, it's a good road trip, it's, you know, three, four hundred miles, whatever, a nice afternoon, stuff like that's always great, I mean, right now, more from a time standpoint, it's mostly back and forth to the house, right, right. <laughs> and um, every now and then if there's something uh, not too far away maybe right. that I could get to, but to be able to like ride to an event or something like that, it's it's uh, it's just more of a time constraint right. than anything else. Well, at least you're in good riding in this area now, yeah, yeah. Like, whereas New York City, you had to get, get the, the fuck out of it, you know, if you wanted to really hit the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I miss the intensity of riding in the city because yeah. I mean it's a um, it's an acquired taste yeah it's a skill unto itself I mean you you if you see if you see people driving or riding mostly driving in Manhattan 
that are just outright driving like assholes, yeah. usually if you look down, it's jersey plates. Right. <laughs> because it's not what it's about. Yeah, yeah. And people just think, oh, you just drive crazy and do whatever you want. I mean, it's true that the stoplights are basically in a, a suggestion. Right. Um, and it is an aggressive riding style, but there's like a rhythm and a flow to it. Yeah. And you know, if if you do the same thing, I mean, oh, I'm not yeah. I'm not telling telling you anything, but um, you know, I think people have like a little bit of a misconception that it's not like this all out you know scary crazy thing. It's a flow, yeah. right? It's a rhythm, and um, I miss that as well. Yeah. I mean, I love riding Hawks Nest and along the Delaware River and through the mountains, and I mean, up here is is amazing. Um, it's you know, in direct contrast to, to the other way of riding. Right. And that was definitely a blast. Yeah. Oh, know, I, I think it's the you, best place to cut your teeth is New you York City yeah, <laughs> on, you know, on a chopper. <laughs> you got to do it right. And yeah. you would know your routes and, you know, just, you know, um, hand shifting with no front brake. And I mean, I did have a friend on a, uh, with a long Springer front end that, folded that up on the back bumper of a taxi one night <laughs> but uh you know it went back to the shop and got hammered out straight and continued on yeah yeah <laughs> new d-rake project yeah um, yeah yeah it's different it's like i tell people it's all like from new york people always ask what it's like riding there i always mm -hmm. want to go there mm -hmm. and i say it's the best and the worst place in the world to ride you know mm -hmm. like there's nothing like right. fucking shredding a bike through the manhattan lights at midnight mm -hmm. or fucking you know doing a burnout or a wheelie in times square like there's nothing fucking better than that but it's not the mountains of utah you know it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. just different you know I mean, when you've got your little it's pack different. you know and you're doing your you know thing and it's like fucking you're blasting through traffic going to the bar and you're gonna all that front right and it's just you know it's the fucking best yeah you know? yeah and um so the uh the thing though about like having to get out of the city to really get some miles up it's also the reality of having a bike shop mm -hmm. and then want to say test ride a bike that you just got done building right and that's that's all you have to work with until like you said you know like a half an hour later, you can actually get out on some open road. Right. So it, it, it is difficult to say you've got a new engine to break in, or you really got to see, you know, shift through the gears and see what this bike is doing. Mm. Here, I can do this right out the door. Right, right. right. But there it was, it was, you know, you could, uh, difficult because you yeah. could go like around the block and, you know, try to like get through a few gears, but you'd really have to, you know, lock everything up and really have this, you know, make an effort to get out and do some long distance test, test drives because you, you couldn't really do it there. Yeah. Yeah, it always scares that. me. A new engine in Manhattan in the hot summer, like, yeah. cooking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? You know, you're, you're stuck and it's just sitting there. Yeah. Boiling over. <laughs> exactly. Yep. It's the worst. Yep. Yeah, so of course you're immediately like on the sidewalk and splitting lanes. Right. Just to keep some air flowing over. Right. You. And so you can get on the BQE and it's just beating the shit out of you. Yeah, right. It's pothole after pothole. Yeah. I always wanted to ask that. Like, you were around back then. Were the roads a little better in the 90s? Or they were just as bad? No. Uh -oh. They were just <laughs> shitty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. There was this guy. There was, um, was he leaving? It might have been Hogs and Heifers. Uh, uh, you remember Hogs and Heifers? Of course. Yeah, I was there the last night there. Meatpacking district? Yeah, yeah. Because um, there was a guy... 
I heard I heard him tell the story. He was a another friend of mine's buddy. But he was on his his dress. I think he was a panhead or a shovelhead sort of dresser, and he was blasting out of there. I think he'd gone up and he was going across. Um, um, I forget which street. It might have been on 14th. Whatever he was on. And he hit a massive pothole. He's already drunk out of his mind anyway. <laughs> so he hit a massive pothole, bent his rim, bent his front end, tossed him in the street, fucked the bike all up. And um, so he's standing over there. He's like wrangling the thing up. He can barely stand up. And he was so pissed. He's waving cops over because he's so pissed about the fucking pothole destroying his bike. I didn't even think about the fact that he's just fucking drunker than shit, you know, yeah. could barely stand up. But he was so pissed, I think it almost like took the drunk out of him. Right. And actually, long story short, ended up winning a lawsuit with the city. Really? And actually wow. got paid because of that pothole instead of getting taken, instead of getting a, a ticket for DUI. Right, That's right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it was bad because the other friend used to refer to a lot of those potholes as low-income housing. <laughs> so bad. Yeah, that's hilarious. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, there's some areas that are a little bit nicer, actually, than they used to be that they've been working on. Right, right. Yeah, yeah when you said you were in Hell's Kitchen, too, like, uh, the yeah. only thing I think of is, like, that was, like, the New York City hooker capital of the city at that time. <laughs> right. I mean, before they cleaned it up, honestly, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for people that don't know, it's, like, right next to Times Square. It was, like, pretty dirty area. Yeah, we were further, we were on um, 38th, right, like near the Javits Center. Right. And like 38th and 10th? Like yeah, but two, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like 10th Avenue. Yeah, in those areas, you're right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah I mean, Times Square Road. is only fucking 10 blocks. It's not that far from there. No, it's know? just a few blocks over. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, they would definitely go over there. Yeah, that was an interesting area. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's nice now, but, yeah. you know. I feel like I can't even, like, really fully understand what New York City used to be. You know, like, <laughs> I hear all the stories and everything, but, like, I don't, yeah. I, I, you don't see it. Yeah, I think even when we moved over to Brooklyn, uh, moved the shop over there, that was in 2000. I'd moved over there um, from my apartment on the Lower East Side. I'd moved over there in 94, mm -hmm. and Ann and I did, my wife and I did. And it was still like in Williamsburg, it was still just crickets. It was just local Polish and Italian. And um, then down towards the bridge was Hispanic and then the Hasids, the, the Jewish Hasids. And then artists, you know, that would just get cheap, like commercial space. Mm. So that's kind of why we moved over there just to get, you know, we lived in a storefront that was like an old luncheonette or something mm. like that <laughs> in Williamsburg that you could get cheap because nobody was there. Oh, shit. And, um, you know, and then look what that turned into. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, so then in 2000, it was still kind of the same thing. When, you know, we wanted to get back together and, and do a shop, there was still really, really cheap commercial space. And we got the place on 14th Street, right on, on Kent Avenue, that was a major trucking route. Now mm. it's like insane, you know, uh, condo buildings and high rises and right. on all this kind of stuff. But those are just abandoned little lots on the river. And I, soon after we had moved into the, the shop over there, um, there was something in the news about finding like a decapitated hooker's head in a dumpster <laughs> at the end of the, at the, end of yeah. the corner. Yeah. And, um, you know, because it was still that kind of area. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I, I worked for the, the Long Island Railroad, and when I started there, I was in the Manhattan Yard right next to the Javits Center. Mm -hmm. And, like, payday, dude, the hookers would be waiting at the fucking gates. <laughs> Seriously, it was so crazy back then. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it was just cab, it was just cab stands. Yeah, right. All yeah, because all the garages that did the taxi cabs, and, uh, and the hookers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because that's where you know, uh, you know English Don. Uh, I don't personally know him, but I know him. Yeah, did, yeah. Because yeah. um, when he was, um, he and you know he and Steg, that started Psycho Cycles. He and Steg were initially before Psycho started. Uh, in in Queens, and they had SD Cycle. Okay. Steg and Don. Steg and Don. And then they split up, and Steg started Psycho Cycles on um, on Avenue C in the East Village, and Don kept the name SD and continued SD Cycles, and moved up to uh, Hell's Kitchen. So um, he ended up having this uh, this bike that became the Babylon Taxi, mm -hmm. kind of a well-known bike, and he built that up when he was up in Hell's Kitchen and had the shop there, right amongst all these taxi cab repair repair shops. <laughs> I don't know if he actually had one of them maybe painted because it was the same yellow. But, was it um, checkered? Too? It was, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No shit. Oh, you, gotta, you haven't seen the Babylon taxi? No, I'll look Google. it up. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think it was inspired a little bit by the fact that he was surrounded by <laughs> taxi stands, <laughs> and that's where they would set up all those cars and paint them. Yeah, and then when he ended up uh, leaving out of there and letting that shop go, we were at the same time leaving ours on Rivington, so uh, moved up and into that space for a while. Right. Yeah. Um. So, would you, like along this whole time, were you mostly just the leather guy at that time, or like, like, or did you did you did you kind of in your younger years start all this metal skill or was it like started off mostly leather work and then got into paint like mm -hmm. what was what was the order of progression there like because you just do it all now I, i've said it on a lot of podcasts i think you're like the the highest level of like multi-talented guys like i don't know anyone who's on no. your level that does <laughs> well, this many crafts <laughs> you know what i mean really nice you. um like like what's where where did it start? Did it start with leather work and then go to metal or paint or like um, I, in the motorcycle world? I when think. I was still doing um, and still you know paint and you know but I'm talking about doing like uh, painting on you know, canvas type yeah. stuff and, and you know getting things in galleries and that type of thing. Um, that's when we had an apartment on uh, the on um, fuck was the name of the street. Rough Clinton and Stanton Street, a couple of blocks from Psycho, from the shop, right. Right, on Lower East Side. And I was doing leather work for uh, bike guys and for myself out of, out of the apartment as well. So I had set up like a studio area, and we're talking like a one-room studio with me and my wife. Mm. And there was, you know, a few square feet. It was like the velvet couch with this really cool like red velvet couch and the TV and like books and the bed and then there was the area that she had her uh sewing stuff because she's also in fashion design and i had my easel with my my painting stuff and then i had my little bike building leather working bench so this was all within you know the, probably the size of your kitchen right you know? <laughs> um and uh and so that's where i was doing leather work for you know for other other bike guys and 
I had done some stuff for myself, and you know, some people would see like, oh, you know, that's a cool seat or a nice saddlebag or whatever. Could you do one for me? It's like, sure. Right. So I was doing all that out of my my apartment and um, doing some work with galleries, doing like uh, installations and art moving and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so I was doing leather work for the shop, for Steg and, and Larry and for Sixth Street. Um, out of my space and then one day they just said hey why don't you just come on over you can you can do some fabrication work as well and then set up a leather shop in the in the bike shop at psycho so I said, that's great so that's why i was saying before i had a spot upstairs right. next to where where larry was working where i would do you know bike work right like do you know wrenching on the bikes and do some fabrication stuff but you know, do like hourly rate type, you know, repair stuff. Right. And um, then also had the space in the basement that was just my own little leather shop. So right from the beginning, it was always both. And as far as the shop as a whole, I would do some work, you know, on the, uh, the fabrication end, but then the leather work would be mine on the finished bikes. So then people just kind of made that natural association. Right. But, um, you know, it was kind of, always both from the beginning and then the you know the leather work is just kind of my independent thing right right as well they always kind of parallel mm -hmm. yeah um yeah i don't want to kill too much of your time here uh i, I do know, have uh, one more question much more time you want to burn but yeah, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh where did the oh, take welding come into play? Were you guys doing like a lot of MIG welding? Because I feel like that you guys taught America what a TIG welder was. You know, because <laughs> one day you needed to have a TIG welder. Nobody knew what a TIG welder was, but everybody knew that these so guys funny. on this show had them. Right. And right. that we all couldn't do anything without them. Right. Oh man, that's so I funny. never thought of it like that, but I'll, I I know what you're talking about. The I never first, thought what he said. But. Well, the first TIG welder I got, I couldn't even find one in New York, dude. I went to almost, it was just outside of Philly in South Jersey uh -huh. to get my first fucking TIG welder. Like nobody TIG welded until like post 05. Like you, it was hard to find a local that's TIG so welder funny. guy. That was like most of my work back then. Cause Larry always did, you know, cause he was doing a lot of, um, in his early days, besides the bike stuff, he also did a lot of architectural metal work and a lot of iron work. Right. And I wish, that's one thing that I wish I knew, but he's done a lot of architectural iron work in the city. Uh -huh. You know, like gates and doors and things that you can walk right by it and not know that, that Larry built it. Oh, shit. Um, so he, you know, did a lot of that type of welding, uh, stick welding and, you know, MIG and stuff, but also TIG. He was just a really proficient welder in all facets and brazing. So he taught me brazing. He eventually, I kept nagging him to show me how to TIG weld. And, uh, you know, just always too busy, too much to do. You know, he didn't have time to sit down. And then it was a, a few years in, and one night, um, it was another guy worked with us, uh, Knucklehead Steve, that was an old friend of Larry's as well. And he and I were in there one night, Larry had already left, and we're like, fuck it, we can figure this out. <laughs> And we turned everything <laughs> on and just started kind of like, you know, playing around with it. 
and um, you know one thing led to another and just kept like practicing and then Larry was like oh, okay let me let me really show you how to do it right, right. and um, <laughs> he comes in his tungstens are all <laughs> yeah out. oh I'm sure everything's all <laughs> fucked up all the settings are all and that's when we still had this big talk about dragging equipment around this big like Lind that was my first machine welder yeah big was green. it like the size of a Volkswagen <laughs> yeah I used to call it my big green money machine oh <laughs> it was literally like stood this tall yeah, yeah it was like three by two or whatever it was fucking huge yeah it was massive yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it had a f so that's what we had and uh and then oh and it was cool because actually to this because we still had that done at Rivington and um Larry would would uh, wherever we would set up, the the frame table would always be near the machine, mm -hmm. and he would just run a steel like weld off a strap to the frame table. Okay. So across the floor, so it was just always permanently grounded. Hmm. Oh, because everything shit. that he was welding or making was on this table. Oh, that's so. So cool. that was just always hardwired to the to the ground on the machine. Oh, hmm. that's fucking so smart. You wouldn't have to grab it. Just bolt the eyelet right to the machine. Yeah, I mean to the table. Yeah, just welded it, to, welded a strap across the floor. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That is yeah. cool. Um, yeah, so we had that old that old machine. We had an old Bridgeport, which the the first one. I don't know where the first one went, but then the second Bridgeport we had is that one that's over there, behind in the corner that we had on uh, 14th Street in Brooklyn, but. Um, but yeah, the, the, we had that old welder for a while. But then, like to fast forward after some of the like the, the stuff with Jesse and the motorcycle mania stuff, Jesse was doing um, a lot of things with Esob mm -hmm. at the time. You know, Esob welders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, he sent us a bunch of stuff from Esob, which was amazing. I mean, that was I think we had a Miller at the time. We might have actually upgraded to having a proper, you know, a modern like yeah. Miller or whatever. And um, so Jesse sends over all this ESOB stuff, and it was um, you know a MIG, like a big TIG, a little TIG, and a plasma cutter, right? So Larry's all excited about the plasma cutter. Yeah. And pulls that thing out, we set it up. <laughs> so the first thing he does, he gets a piece of sheet metal and lays it on the same table, and then just goes to cut it like, I don't know how he magically thinks it's gonna know how thick the metal is or something, <laughs> but he just cuts it like right on the table. Right. So, there's this big, where, I think it's up front, is it? But there's a big cut through the table, and it's on that side, where he just like laid the metal on it <laughs> and did a cut. Yeah. Oh, here, right, here it is. Here yeah, it is. Out the table. Yeah, no, he goes like, oh, let me try it out. <laughs> so that was Larry trying a plasma cutter for the first time. That was on, on, a, on a chunk of sheet metal. <laughs> That's too yeah. You know. It's like, whoa, how does this work? <laughs> That's cool. Were you guys uh, tight with Jesse before Motorcycle Mania, or is that how you guys met him when when Motorcycle Mania started? Uh, you guys know him I'm before that? I think we run into each other. Because he was, you know, really Doug Larry and, and you know, his whole, his whole vibe and everything that he was doing and brought him along on the Motorcycle Mania uh, deal and him and chopper dave and uh giuseppe and and jesse and they did that ride out from jesse's shop out to sturgis and um and then i think i met trying to remember when i met jesse i think when he came to the shop because mm -hmm. he had come over a few times over the shop in new york 
and we met. But also being into you know hot rods and stuff, you know, I've always been in this uh, this car club, uh, the Rumblers. You're and in the Rumblers? Yeah, yeah. Oh no shit! Yeah, I didn't since know they that. started out in '96. Awesome. Hmm. And um, so uh, you know, Jesse had come out for some car stuff, and we would we would get together, at, you know, that type of thing as as well. Cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they had you know they did the the motorcycle mania thing, and um, you know that really kind of kicked Larry up a, a notch. Mm -hmm. And I remember you know. Larry saying, he was like relaying a, a story when he was talking to Jesse, kind of like, you know, the visibility is great, and this is really, really cool, so, you know, now what do I do? Like, what's next? And and Jesse's response was sort of like, you know, I, I, I gave you that much, I mean, now you've got to do something with it. Right. You know, so you've got this opportunity, you know, this visibility, and um, so now take that and grow it, you know, not do something with that. Right. And I think, you know, Larry kind of took that to, took that to heart. And, um, you know, he even goes back to putting himself in New York City, same as I did. You know, you could be doing amazing work under a under a tree out in Wyoming someplace, and if nobody knows about it, then it doesn't really do you right. any, any good, you know, professionally or whatever. And, you know, Larry grew up upstate New York, but wanted to be in New York City, wanted to be where things were happening and, you know, basically the center of the universe. I mean, these days you can pretty much do anything anywhere right. and and build a business around it because, you know, you can share it with the world. Back then you had to physically, like, uproot yourself and, you know, that's in the arts. I mean, that's why I wanted to be in New York City. Right. Same as my, my wife with in fashion and, and same with, you know, Larry with what he wanted to pursue. So... Um, you know, that's what you had to do is to be where, you know, things were happening. Right. And that's where we kind of <clears throat> converged, you know, for the same reason. Uh, being a kid that grew up in Richmond, Virginia, did mm -hmm. you always, like, romanticize moving to New York City even as a young kid? No, no, it wasn't even on, on my radar until I was in, well, in college. Maybe at high, no, in college, I yeah. guess, you know. Yeah. I didn't think much about it. Right, right. I mean, I was always into the arts ever since I was little, always painting and drawing and building stuff. And, um, you know, the mechanical stuff kind of, you know, came, came from some time early on with my dad. And then, you know, he sort of shared a little bit. I mean, he was into it, but we did some stuff together, but it might have been just more of like a born-in kind of thing. Right. Because we didn't really do the buddy-buddy stuff at all. Because um, then they... Um, split up when I was when I was pretty young so it was just me and my mom sort of you know moving around in apartments and um, but that stuck with me I always loved like the the motorhead uh, you know mechanical stuff that was uh, I was always obsessed with anything mechanical mm -hmm. and loved the arts loved painting and drawing and um, always had access to some sort of materials that I could I could be creative with right so that never ended and Dude, the drawings are fucking outrageous. I saw, I I didn't know you were that into the drawings. Uh, oh, thanks, man. I always heard you were just a painter, at, you know, before bikes and all that. But I saw your stuff on display at Culture Lab this year. Oh, cool! Fucking wild sketches. It's amazing. Okay. Yeah, it's like, it's wild. But I mean, that's got to consume a lot of your time. All these drawings and sketches and bikes you're drawing up. Mm. Do you still uh, spend time uh, throwing paint on a canvas also, or mostly just drawing? It's been a while, and I picked up some, some actually some materials recently. Um, 
to kind of get myself motivated to maybe do some canvases again. Mm -hmm. um, but that specific aspect, it's been a while. But, um, you know, when people ask about that, you know, knowing some of my history, I just find that, uh, you know, all of it is just this sort of, you know, creative way of life that it's all exciting to me. And I do, I do go back to the drawings of the bike projects because I like to see them. Sometimes what I have in my, my head, I like to see it on paper. I like to visualize it. And, right. you know, I like to do the sketches and the drawings um, ahead of time just because I enjoy it. Right. And uh, it's just another aspect of the journey and of the process that just kind of fleshes it out even just a little bit more. Right. Uh, so I just kind of did that. Through, through the job, through the drawings, do you always, like, I hear a lot of bike builders say this, like, I've got fucking 10 bikes in my head at all times that I'm mm -hmm. just dying to build. Mm -hmm. Through the drawings, do you have, like, a lot of bikes that you're dying to build? Or is it just, when you're ready to build a bike, I'll do the drawing mm -hmm. and start thinking? Uh, you know, usually the drawing is kind of a byproduct, you know, a, a little ways into the process. It's not like needing to do it to figure it out. Okay. It's just, you know, something that I kind of think is, is cool to have around. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it goes back to the whole, like, you know, the next one's going to be a little bit better type thing. Right. Definitely thinking throughout the process, man, I can't wait to try it this way next time. You right, know, right. Really, you know, say making a gas tank, doing the metalworking. I mean, that is such an intricate process. And you look at somebody like, we were looking at the hammer that Christian Sosa mm. built and um, somebody that specializes in that type of work like he does, you know, the, the finesse and the nuances are just so intricate that you could spend a lifetime just, oh, yeah. just you know, trying to perfect that process. Yeah, never stop so growing with as, that. As far as the, the bikes and the different ones you want to build, sure, I mean, right down to a, you know, to their core, there's differences that you want to make in each bike. And sure, there's different designs overall and concepts and geometry I want to try and change up. Um, different uh, tank shapes and paint jobs and right. engine combinations. I mean, I love, you know, kind of the wacky motors and, yeah. and mixing up, you know, uh, the engine configurations and stuff. So there's always a few on deck. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, Do you have a bike sure. from your past that is your favorite? Do you have, like... Do you think you've made your Mona Lisa I mean, yet? <laughs> like, it's, I mean, know. it's gotta be the Berserker, I guess. Yeah. You know, I mean, I did love that bike. And sometimes when a bike runs, it's like this knucklehead I did a few years ago, this green knucklehead. You know when a bike runs and you're on it and just, it feels, I mean, for lack of a better word, it just feels like, like butter. I mean, mm -hmm. it just feels like you just kind of melt into it. And that bike felt like that. And um, let in before when, when I was still kind of like getting into building motors and getting into the engineering stuff, I was kind of you know fortunate to say that Larry built that engine for me, mm. and I learned a lot through that process with him. And um, I tell you, man, when he said this is the way to do this and that and the other thing, it worked. Right, that thing was fast. Yeah, and uh, I, I loved the hell out of that bike. So I would, ha I would have to say that was kind of my iconic choice. And I had it all over the, the place, you know, going back to our comments about opportunities to get, you know, to be traveling around the world and, and doing some of those events with the bike, you know, right. with your favorite bike, like on a ship or yeah. 
on a plane or whatever and it's there when you get there how yeah. cool is that <laughs> it's awesome you know yeah would that be the one that got away you said you don't own it anymore no i mean i don't look at it like that i mean you know it served it's i i loved it and then when somebody offered uh, to buy it it served its its purpose well i mean i had shit to pay for right. you know? <laughs> And, yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> you know, and when you really dwell on like, oh my God, you know, it's really, it's a shame that was, I mean, it was a, it was a moment in time. Right. It was uh, something that you'll never, you never replicate identically any of the things that you do creatively through life, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to achieve something just to satisfy them yet again. If you had to pick something out of the group that was maybe the most iconic, I would say that one. Right. For, for myself, but, um no i mean i don't i don't i don't miss it it had a proper send-off and right. i went there to meet it and, and uh you know wrote it uh wrote it over there and it you know no i don't feel bad about that at all right, um, right. yeah that's living a good life right right, right. yeah that's cool yeah. yeah that's certainly my favorite bike yeah. uh have you ever seen uh a bike built by uh kevin bass Sure. Christian, uh, fuck, I'm going to blank on his name. Uh, Marshall what? Uh, Leatherworks. Christian Marsh. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, he did, he did a leather cover on that bike. Uh, I was just curious if you ever seen that bike. But, uh, no. it's, he calls no. it the Zeus bike. It's, it's a leather wrap tank with, like, like the, the Zeus lightning bolt on has? shit. Yeah, yeah, Springer front oh, end. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if But it's the only other leather cover bike I ever saw. He did it, like, years after yours, obviously. I mean, yeah. it was like probably 10, 15 years after you built that bike. Um, he may have built like, it like five years ago, you know? He does, he does some neat stuff. Like, Kevin's a great guy. Yeah. He's awesome. Um, and Christian's really, he does some awesome leather work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he oh, does yeah. beautiful leather work. Yeah. He really does. Um, but uh, it's it's funny about the Berserker. I remember uh, Chopper Dave would always say, uh, you know Chopper Dave over in California? Never met him, but I know him. Okay. I know of him, you know. He heard something about that bike. I don't know. And he says, oh, man, I thought it was look like shit. I thought it was going to look like shit. I thought I was going to hate it. <laughs> and then he said, but he's, we saw it. He said we were at something, and he came up, and he was, like, checking it out up close. And, you know, done so much, like, little engineering metalwork things, and, you know, everything was all, like, tweaky and weird on it. And it was like, oh, but once I saw it in person, I changed my mind. But I thought it was going to be shitty. <laughs> I thought it was stupid. You know, because somebody had said, oh, the like, leather-covered panhead thing or whatever. Yeah. Well, um, nah, man, it was cooler than fuck. Did you think that you had uh, invented the wheel when you're like, I'm gonna fucking leather wrap this bike? Did you think it was the coolest idea you ever had at the time? No, you know, um, there was a guy that was running around uh, the East Village Flash that had a bike with like a cowskin cover, like a pony covered saddle, mm -hmm. right? It had like pony skin on it. And, um, I think that was kind of stuck in my head a little bit, you know, thinking about like incorporating leather into the into the bike, and it just had a really kind of cool, you know, vibe to it. And uh, then one thing led to another with with doing the whole scale. I mean, I'd done a Triumph earlier on with sort of like a similar, like cruder version of that. Okay. And um, when I had this this Triumph chopper that was actually in the old Iron Horse, a long time ago. And, um, and, and that was sort of the beginning of that concept. And then yeah. when I did the pan head, 
I was like, oh, let me like really do it better. Yeah. You know? And um, you know, machining like these spiky axle nuts and just you know, <laughs> it's like everything had to be weird and yeah. one of a kind. Even the fender struts, like, God only knows how long it took to fucking make those. Like, you know, the whole bike. You know? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of little odds and ends. Was that originally there. built for you though? Like, was that a personal ride when you were building when it? I built it, or did you have yeah, a customer yeah. already? No, 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 no. That was my bike. It took took years to build that damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably took like, ten, huh, probably like eight years to build it. It was just damn. like collecting stuff and, you know. Um, like my wife gave me a Magneto for my birthday and then Larry gave me a Super B carburetor and then I got the frame from Stevie and then, you know, somebody gave me something else and, you know, because we would like gift each other part, you know, mm -hmm. presents of parts at like Christmas and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just collecting things like one at a time because I couldn't afford shit and, and um, eventually got it all together. <laughs> no, I was, I was building that for myself. That was my life. Cool. But yeah, then somebody just eventually just offered, you know, the right, the right money to buy it. Right, right. <laughs> I totally understand that. <laughs> the number was right. Yeah, yeah, I get it. That's uh, that's my hoarder mentality. In my asking people, how did you sell that? How'd you get rid of that? You know? Oh, no way. I'm just like, oh fuck, dude. Love them to let them go. Yeah. yeah, I I I definitely sell my share of shit, but goddamn, I gotta hoard these days. <laughs> I gotta I gotta figure that out. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to burn up all all your time or whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm good. So you look at your phone. What year? No, I just. I don't know, I don't know if that was like I gotta get the fuck out of here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no. But no, uh, I'm good. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are you gonna ask? Ask no, I was gonna say, what, what, which, which year are we up to? Oh God, I don't even know, <laughs> man. Story. I feel like I, I feel like I, I don't want to ask the dreaded question, but I feel like we're pretty much up to like uh, where Larry had died. Like we're in the early two thousands, kind of sort of like how you met Jesse James and all that. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. You know, we bounced around like the Sturgis mm -hmm. days at that time. Berserker was already built. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that was pretty much like. Uh, that would be a chapter in your life, right? I mean, after Larry died, having to figure out what is going on for you, like, you can mm -hmm. open up your own shop. You guys said you did the legacy thing for a while. Like, yeah, that yeah. must have been a hell of a hard time in your life, man, yeah, losing your best friend and, and all that, you know? Yeah, we stuck together. Um, we, uh, I mean, there was the whole few years that seemed like an eternity, but, like, all the Discovery Channel days, you know, were really all kind of compressed into a few years. And... Um, you know, that led up to that, the last uh, uh, build-off that Larry did against Mondo, mm -hmm. you know, when we rode down to North Carolina and um, and lost Larry, you know, that weekend. And, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was an intense time. But, the t you know, the, the, the outpouring and response from people, and, you know, was so much that they wanted to see this thing continue and not just evaporate right you know that we had built and larry was all about the team you know what i mean he, he never didn't say you know the team this or you know us and all you know he was inclusive of everybody that helped him along the way and you know he was definitely loved being the showman but admittedly he was being a showman you know right. he loved right. like the big you know uh 
uh, Ed Big Daddy Ross kind of vibe. And um, it's like he would be Ed Roth and I was more Von Dutch. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> I'll just be sitting over here in the corner, you know. Yeah. Um, Did he ever try and drag you into the uh, show business end of He things? wanted to be out there and be the showman. He loved it. And, I, you know, I, I was kind of conveniently just off to the side doing my own thing. And, um, and didn't sort of have to do that. He never dragged you to so, Coney Island and tried to get Oh, he dragged me all over the place. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. Because he would make a point of saying, like, you know, he got this gig to do a show in Hawaii. Oh, okay. And said, um, you know, but I want to bring Paul along too. And it's like, okay, that's cool, you know. And a lot of times he would do that and, and you know, bring us along as well. And, and like I said, he was really into the fact that, you know, he had a, a crew and it wasn't just him by himself doing everything and um, but you know he saw as part of the job to be sort of like in the spotlight and be the showman because he was really he was really good at it Mm -hmm. and he loved it he would say like this is really what i want to do i love doing this shit right you know Uh, he loved the attention and he had like a charisma and and people would kind of feed off of that and uh you know so yeah it seemed like that all of you guys had your own specific like Big strengths, right. and that all worked out very well together. Yeah, can I take a piss real quick? Sure, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> you back after these lessons. <laughs> we had fun with all that. Oh yeah. Oh man, I bet. Yeah, that must have been a blast. such a fucking awesome time, man. It was nuts, man. And it's um, like you guys lived a lifetime in five years, like in a block. It, it really did know? feel like that because it was a whole different sort of vibe that happened overnight. And you know, with Larry doing the thing with Jesse, and then at the same time, I, mean, I don't know the actual dates and times, but you know, Billy did that first build-off show mm-hmm. with um, Roger Borget. Yeah. The first one that they did, I think they did it at the Smokeout. Yeah. So, um, Billy also was a big proponent of getting, um, you know, Larry some visibility as well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he liked Larry and thought he had some pretty cool stuff to offer and was already connected with the Discovery Channel people. So, you know, between uh, Billy and, and Jesse sort of being behind Larry getting some airtime, right. that all, you know, really kind of started to happen. And then it, you know, just kind of he, you know, carried on from there. But um, you know, we just, yeah, we had a, we had a blast. And it, it was, you know, all, the the other thing that was kind of cool at the time that you saw, or interesting, I should say, that you saw a transition through those um, few years that they were doing those shows, is that at first, like literally the first few episodes, there wasn't anything as like reality TV except for. Um, that thing, the real world that was on MTV where right. they would just put a bunch of yeah. idiot kids in an apartment <laughs> yeah. and just, you know, let them implode on each other. Yeah, right. it wasn't like a full format and of where dude, that I existed. I never thought just about that. that, that like, that was like the dawn of reality TV. It really too. was. It was. I never so even the, thought of that. So the thing is, and think how many, you know, especially like, you know, automotive and bike and tattoo based stuff there is. Now. Thousands now. of them. Right. Yeah. But there was nothing. So my point being, there wasn't like a formula. Mm, there wasn't right. like a, a recipe or a format as right. to what worked. So the first few shows in the first few years, dealing directly with the um, 
you know, the crew and there was always a producer on site and then the film guys and stuff. It was always genuine when we dealt with it, but it was even more so because they didn't know what they were trying to get. Yeah. They were literally just a fly on the wall. Yeah. Right. Hoping that, you know, the audience thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. So, so at that you time, know. it was pure reality. They weren't asking you to yeah, do and, any and, bullshit. And in a good way. Right. In a really good way. And, and like I said, we kept it that way. And we're really fortunate to have always worked with great people. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't have, I mean, I'm sure there could be something if I really But I don't have like stories of, you know, manipulation or a lot of behind the scenes bullshit. Right. Because, um, uh, you know, we were never really put in that position mm -hmm. because we we were dealing with with good you, people. Your friends, right? You know, right? And it was usually people that had been, you know, filming or working on other stuff that we had worked with before. They kind of knew your your vibe or whatever. But um, my my point being, though, as the years would or the shows would go on, they start to see what worked. Right. And they would and they would come in with expectations. So in the beginning, you just get that really genuine fly on the wall kind of thing where, you know, they're not even necessarily into, you know, things mechanical or know that you're working on something really important. Um, but you'll have to, you know, just expect that maybe they catch it on film. But, um, you know, then they'll start to see the things that work and then they'll try to catch certain yeah. aspects of stuff that they know is gonna play to the audience well. Yeah. Um, but the timelines and all that kind of stuff, we stayed, you know, genuine to them. Yeah. And if we had X number of days, I mean, that's what we would use to do what we had to do and, all, right. and all, all that kind of stuff. But you really, you know, you, you saw the expectations change over the years right. when they saw what worked season after season. Do you think if um, if Larry was alive today, do you think you would still have gone on your own? Like, did you always have a desire to, to do your own thing anyway? When we were together at that phase, <clears throat> I I don't know if I would have even thought about that. Really? No. Because okay. I would have still had other things that I would do, I would do independently, like the fine art stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say maybe I would still be, you know, doing paintings or trying to get stuff in galleries or whatever. Um, but with this, no, things were great. I mean, we just were like a, a team, you know. Right. You know, I mean, we fed off each other. As far as this stuff, we fed off each other creatively, just, you know, constantly. Mm -hmm. We balance each other out a lot. And as much as, it's, it's funny, because design-wise, as much as he was sort of the crazy one, he would always, like, dial me down on design stuff. Right. Like, I'd say, what about this? And we do this, and this little crazy thing here. And, you know, he just liked really super clean and minimal right. when it came to, like, mechanical and engineering things. But at the same time, it still had to be intricate and, like, you know, like you would always say, gizmo-y and, right. and, you know, the metal flake paint. Exposed. So it's kind of like a little bit of a, you know, almost a, a contradiction. Right. But, um, <laughs> but he still liked, like, a, a, a really clean, simplistic... You know geometry and silhouette but at the same time really seeing what's happening inside you know 
as much as possible. Right, right. Exposing the incident. I mean, that's what used to drive me crazy about bikes, like, you know, we talk about the yuppie soft tails across town, <laughs> is just sheet metal and things that covered up other right. things. Right. You know, that would be like, Which, you would say that's like a sailboat. Right, and Who right. cares? You know, it's not, you can't even see what's going on with it. Um, which came to rule that era like I, like not yeah. to put any names out there but like in my head I think of like Eddie Trout style bikes or mm. you know your typical like OCC like mm. sheet metal you cover everything up you know mm. which you know yeah I mean they all had their style right yeah. right it just didn't have to be ours but Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have this picture of like right. you guys all standing on a street corner and then like a Coney Island bike comes around the corner and it's <laughs> like the opposite of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what we need. Right, right. That's did fun. you guys ever did did people really pull at you at that time to do like wide tire bikes and shit? Or they just knew like this ain't what we're doing here? Uh, not really. Like like but like big beach ball type times. Yeah, so, yeah. Because yeah. you guys never really crossed not, over like 180 really. or 200, right? Yeah, I mean, honestly, if there was a couple of bikes, if there was something that went out with a 200 on it, I mean, that was rare. Right, right. But, you know, really, you know, moved, going up to like a 180, which became kind of like a staple that kind of came became ideal geometry, um, is more than we would have done earlier on. You right. know, I mean, Larry was pretty much maxing out at like a 130. Really? You know, I think Grease Monkey was maybe a 150, which was big for that. Okay. But we ended up doing a lot of 180s, and I still think it's it's pretty nice without being too much discrepancy between the front tire and the back tire for cornering and stuff. Right. I think a 180 is kind of a max ideal. Yeah, I and, agree. You know, even on stock, I, mean, I think the you know the new bikes now, most of them have like 180s. Yeah. But, it, um, it is, uh, you go any wider and the bike starts feeling like shit, but I think aesthetically, the 180, like to get the lines and curves of a bike and like the portions right, yeah. a fucking 180 and a 150 looks so good, man. Mm -hmm. You know, like that might be a 180, right? Like, yeah. I just think, I think proportionally a 180 is just such a good looking tire, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's a difference that I always go back and forth between putting it on a 16 or an 18. Right. Because, you know, that's it's so a big completely difference. different. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, yeah. that 16, it's just a little bit more of a an earlier old school kind of look you get more sidewall mm -hmm. and then like this 18 or the one that's over there on the 18 mm -hmm. it gets that little bit thinner rubber band kind of racy look but you right. also you know you feel it in the corners you get more cushion on that 16 mm -hmm. with a taller sidewall and you get tighter cornering on that 18. Mm -hmm. but, yeah it depends on what you're going for but yeah um yeah yeah, yeah but uh yeah, I guess that's a 180 also. A lot of, uh, this uh, one? Going, no, not that one over there. Oh, yeah. You got a lot of lanes going on. Yeah. A lot of lanes going on. Yeah. What a going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. But you're right, it is hard to beat the feel of a 130, you know? Like, it can feel a little bit zoomed in. That thing feels like, you get a 130, man, you can really corner with that thing. Yeah. It feels that's like true. up, up. Like you flick it around, you know? Yeah, because yeah, um, so often it's just the discrepancy between the front and the back, you know, balancing those mm -hmm. those proportions <clears throat> so that you're not rolling over on something that's going to, you know, kind of skew you at a weird angle once you're on the, on the side. Right. Or once you're in a corner. Um, yeah, you start getting that, like, the tires are fighting each other feel, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
I didn't even expect this to turn into a, a documentary, basically. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell to expect. Well, we're here. Dude, I you're, mean, you're gold, man. You're gold. Um, yeah, I don't know. I we're mean, we're already like, here. Like, uh, yeah. Do you remember? Like, uh, I mean, it must have been a hard headspace to get into building, like, or I mean, just starting to get into the shop again, like, without Larry being that, like, all these years. He must have taught you almost. Most of your craft to this point sounds like Larry taught you engines and a lot of metal work and TIG welding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like to, to I mean, that those years after him, like just, I'm just putting myself in your headspace. Cause I, like I said, I had a bike shop with my best friend and lost him. And like, I just remember like building that first bike without him, you know, mm -hmm. like, do you remember being in that headspace or what bike you did? The first bike that you did on your own after that um i mean it was it was it was it was surreal it was weird mm -hmm. it was weird because there was so much interest in uh what was happening already and then you know the following that that came after mm -hmm. was just phenomenal i mean we got back to the shop and we really had to sit and think you know what to what to do next but there was this natural momentum that um, just sort of took over, and we just sort of felt like it, it just kind of spoke for itself. It just kind of dictated that we need to move forward. Right. And there was um, myself and, and Kano and Bobby and Elisa, and um, I think Bill was with us, and uh, John. And um, yeah, you know, we just kind of looked at each other like, we just we just got to keep going. I mean, we can't uh, we can't just turn this off overnight. Right. And you know, I think it was the very next weekend. We're like within a couple of weeks. You know, everybody wanted to know, well, like, what are you what are you doing to commemorate this? I and mean, what are you guys going to do? What are you guys going to do? And um, you know, Bobby and Lisa kind of got behind putting together an event. You know, we had done one block party mm -hmm. with Larry. I think just one. I think that mm -hmm. was the first one. Yeah. And um, he, you know, he was having a blast. He loved that. That was the best. I think that's when we had the rocket. What did we have the rocket rocket car? We had a rocket <laughs> car out there <laughs> and burned up the, like melted the pavement in front of the shop. Really? And had to aim it towards the East River, towards Manhattan, so it wouldn't set another building on fire. <laughs> it was nuts. Um, and uh, so... It just seemed like this natural progression to do some sort of an emo a memorial event, some sort of a party. And I tell you, I mean, I'd, I've never seen anything like it because there were tens of thousands of people. I mean, it just... It like, that first it, block it, party? It, yeah, it just... Yeah. Well, the, the, the second one, the memorial one, it, it messes with your, your head. Yeah. Because there was like block and block and block, not just on our block for the shop, but the streets were just packed with people. And um, <clears throat> like the local, uh, uh, I guess you'd call them mounted police, but the, like the bike cops, the motorcycle cops, mm -hmm. throughout the day, you know, they had like their, their lights going. They would just like circle the perimeter and keep getting like bigger and bigger, basically out of respect, you know, just kind of like just like creating this like bigger zone right. of Brooklyn right. for this crowd that was gathering 
like block after block. And um, there was just nothing, nothing like it. But you see that and, you know, the support and what people, you know, the, the love that they shared and their interest in what was already going on. And it just felt like, you know, we just have to keep moving forward. Right. And we got together as a, as like a family, as a team, and just decided, yeah, let's just pick up where we left off. And, you know, we've been doing this together for so many years and we're, you know, halfway through this project and we have this one ongoing and people want to see them completed and see more things, you know, happening. So we kept moving forward. And that was, again, you know, a chunk of, of a few years that, I mean, that felt like a lifetime in and of itself. Right. Almost like time moved real slow after that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, at it least was, for a period of time. It was weird. And you, you, yeah. know, you don't know how, how to navigate that kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. people deal with that type of thing in their own way all the time uh, in certain situations. But you don't know what to do, you know, but... Sometimes there's just kind of this, this wave that just kind of carries you along that feels like the right thing at the time. And that's, that's what we did, just sort of listening to, uh, to what felt right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we went on to, to do some neat things together and eventually just came to a point where, um, you know, we just wanted to kind of start doing our own thing again. And, and sort of phased out of that. Like again, the time felt right to kind of move on, and and then I moved, you know, on into my own shop, and Kano did the same thing. And, um, you know, Bobby and Lisa kept uh, moving forward with the any uh, Larry motorcycles. At, at that on. time, was that the first time you became Paul? Oh, is it Paul Cox Industries officially? Like, yeah. Is that the first time you became an official? business of just your own Paul Cox Industries? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. As, well, I, ch- I decided to do Industries just because there were so many things that I wanted to do under that brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, because um, I like doing the, you know, the Were you doing knives? Were you doing that before and, that? Yeah. Like yeah, just that? kind of on the side. Okay. Yeah, just like a personal thing. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, wanted to explore other things and not just be a bike shop, but, you know, more just kind of a general, um, all kinds of creative stuff, you know, but based in motorcycles, but other facets as, as facets as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was wanted to go under industries. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I feel like it didn't kind of pigeonhole me into one thing. Certainly not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. figure it out. You're you know. definitely a guy who wears a lot of hats. Yeah, it's easy. It's a curse. <laughs> like, uh, wish a, I could just pick one thing. A person that does everything like very deliberately. You know, like you're not just swinging stuff together like we do. Right. Uh, right. Do you come in here on like a particular day and you're like, I'm gonna do a knife today, or do you get started on something and then that somehow turns into today you're making a knife? Um. Well, <laughs> the notes. The list in my hand that I wrote the night before always uh-huh. start out like I'm gonna walk in and make a knife. Yeah. <laughs> and that turns into making a gas tank instead. Uh, okay. And then like you know, 15 emails and yeah, um, ordering parts and then and maybe I start making a knife by about midnight. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's you know it is a as much as I want to try to control it and and make like a schedule, it just kind of ends up being pretty organic. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know I wanna try to have 
everything mapped out ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But you know, when you come in and, and sometimes you gravitate towards one thing or the other, and I feel like just so I'm making progress, mm -hmm. then it's okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes you got something that's really got to go, go out the door sure. and you just have to, to stop and do it. But it tends to be a little bit more organic than mm -hmm. that. Yeah, deadlines are a fucking nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like. Uh, yeah. I feel like if if I I would never want to own a bike shop again, but if I was ever as big as you, I would just tell everybody no fucking deadlines anymore. You'll get your stuff when you get it, you know. Yeah. But I guess it doesn't you, matter who you are. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer knowing that no matter how big you get, you can never tell anyone. No more deadlines. I'll just get well, it when the, I get uh, it. The reward for good work is more work, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I try, man. Um, yeah, things... I try my best. What's a typical wait time? If someone, um, let's say someone wants a seat for their, for their chopper, mm -hmm. like... What's a typical wait time for that? Well, everybody's on different timelines because, you know, if I'm like a, a year or two out on a bike, somebody's not going to wait, you know, that long just for a seat because it's not all linear right. like that. So, I mean, a seat might be like six months, okay. you know, something like that. Um, it's a little before, a little after. Um, but, um, you know, things are just on different timelines. Mm -hmm. Same with the knives or, or with the full bikes or with, you know, some odd fabrication thing. Mm -hmm. Man, the knives are a wild one. Um, it's like, I, I always, it's like just, it's very out of left field. Uh, although I know like bikers are in the knives, like I got a knife guy that sponsors this show. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, it's just like, it, it, it seems like a whole different world you have to exist in to drum up business. Because it looks like a lot of your knives are cutlery knives, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, is that, where, did you ever exist in that world? Like. Are you into cutlery, like, or cooking, or? So how that like came how about, that come about? Yeah. is um, making knives, mostly like hunting type stuff, and um, then there's an old friend of ours, Frankie DiCarlo, mm -hmm. that had a few restaurants in the city, and mostly this one uh, peasant down in Soho we used to go to a lot, and he started talking to me about knives that he used in his in his kitchen, and. Um, showed me some sketches, some ideas of some things that he thought would be ideal, you know, but, uh, you know, you're interested in doing it. So I did a couple of knives with him, and then one thing led to another, you know, somebody saw his knives and, you know, wanted to get something done, and that literally became like a whole other sort of, you know, subgroup of work and of a client base mm -hmm. in chefs and restaurant owners that I still deal with. Right. And you do find that you're talking to a guy about building a bike and you find out that, you know, he likes to cook or he owns a restaurant. Right. And then next thing you know, I'm making him a set of chef's knives. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you get that crossover or somebody that hunts, right. you're talking about bikes or, you know, at this point, they'll just reach out directly. But early on, it could just spin off of talking to somebody about something else. Right. But um, but Frankie was a big part of of the whole, like, um, you know chef's cutlery type stuff and and really got behind that mm -hmm. and you know that sort of took on a life of its own right uh, which is it's really cool and it's the same thing with the other stuff we were talking about with the bikes is just trying to make each piece a little bit more functional 
a little bit more comfortable, work a little bit better, and then you're getting into metallurgy and hardening and tempering, which I do here in-house with my kiln, and I've got the Rockwell hardness tester over there. Cool. And, you know, it can really refine the, the product right. a little bit more each time, you know. Are you into hunting? I never really, never really was. Okay. My dad never really took me out or anything. You okay. do some hunting, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, nice. that's, that's what I tell people I live for, hunting in Harleys. Nice. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I figured I'd ask. I never asked you that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's a huge crossover with uh, bikers. There's a lot mm -hmm. of hunters out there. Yeah, yeah. And you the know? best is when they send you back, you know, pictures of them using it. Yeah. I mean, uh -huh. this guy sent, made this guy uh, a, a knife, and he sent me back a picture of him... Um, you know, skinning an elk or some shit. And right, right. The thing sitting there. And it's like, damn, yeah, that is awesome. Case. Yeah. It's meant to be a fucking tool. It's like all the, the chef stuff. I mean, you know, it's their, it's their right hand all day long, you know, 12 hours a day, yeah. six days a week. Yeah. And it's got to work. Yeah. Otherwise, it's junk. Right. You know? Yeah, I think so knives are one of the cooler, uh, you know, it's, it's art, really, when you get into it's everything from a craft to an art and all that, but it's an heirloom tool. You know, that's the coolest part. It tells a story for, for lifetimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like those yeah. knives will be around for fucking generations. You know, yeah, you a quality so. knife. Yeah. You know? It's also, you know, the fact that it's going to do a job is kind of like going back to the bikes compared to just pure art or right. sculpture where, Functional you know, that gets compared art. a lot. And, you know, art basically by definition is meant to serve no other purpose than just exist for its own sake. And I find the fact that motorcycles have to do a job and have certain parameters to function properly as a, as a challenge, you know, that, that I enjoy in right. creating within that sort of framework because it gives you kind of something to bounce off with, bounce off of. And over the years, we've all seen sort of like, you know, bikes as art that are so fucking out of left field that, yeah. I mean, what am I going to do with that? Yeah. Right? That's, that does no job anymore at all. Um, where I kind of like that aspect, you know, that challenge. And it's the same with the knives, you know, that they have to serve a purpose uh, or should serve a purpose if you choose. Right. Choose for Well, it, it is a big thing in the knife world too, man. There's a lot of makers that just build like these silly knives, but you're like, like, what the fuck am I going to do with that? Besides, mm -hmm. it looks cool on a wall, you know, mm -hmm. like. Um, I mean, you can do fun display stuff too, but I just kind of um, find it even more rewarding. Yeah, when, yeah. When it does a job. Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel the same way about bikes too. If they're not useful, mm -hmm. I'm like, I, I don't, I'm just, it doesn't tug at my heartstrings. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to be able to kick that thing and rip it, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, you just you you're starting to see that a lot. Like, I just I can't get into the crazy showy. They're cool, and like obviously we're friends with a lot of these guys. But like I don't know, once you cross that line of like completely unfucking usable, it's like I don't know, it stops grabbing my heart. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like you know. Cool to look at. Yeah, I mean I get it. All these bikes aren't like rolling a bike off the factory floor, and like there's a mm -hmm. degree of rideability. There's levels to this shit, but like yeah, sure. Yeah. But, like, we all know, like, there's a lot of bikes that just cross that line. You're just, like, you're not even fucking riding that a mile, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm like, just talking about what makes what makes me happy because, yeah. you know, I'm building stuff that I would enjoy riding. Right, right. You know, um, so, you know, that's just what I like about it. Yeah. Because what's better than having, the you know, something that's, that's that special, but then you can use it. Yeah. I mean, it's the best. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, but I mean, and then on the other hand, a lot of bikes, you know, in this show realm or whatever, you know, from day one, they know they're just going to be on display somewhere, you know, so I get it. I get it. You're still pushing the boundaries of your craft, you Mm -hmm. know, but I don't want to, I don't want to shit on anyone for just building show bikes, but they just don't tug at my heartstrings. I think, um, there, you know, that there's so much talent used to be a lot more the case, I think, in what's, you know, seen on the forefront, because these days, I think there's definitely an elevated level of talent that's just phenomenal and an interest in functionality, you know, paired with the art of building mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the art that goes into the, the work that uh, creates bikes that are functional and beautiful and really engineered well, you know, and, and pretty amazing. So you see a lot of that lately, I think. Oh, yeah. And there's an interest in that as opposed to just the uh, the dumb stuff. What, I, I, me personally, I, I never saw any of this coming, but did you think that the fucking skill level, or the, the game, let's call it, this art of building, did you ever think it would fucking just take off where and be where it's at now? Mm-hmm. Like, the fucking bar has been so raised in the last 10 years. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like... Did you see that coming? You know, every few years you'd see it sort of cycle between popularity up and down and, you know, just from like a shop standpoint or, you know, are you busy or are you not busy or whatever. But um, but then, you know, when a lot of stuff started to pop up on TV and then everybody kind of jumped on board and thought, you know, I'll, I'll sell everything and, you know, start a bike shop because you can make a fortune right. or I'll just do it in my garage and be just as big as anybody else because I know how. Then you saw a lot of shitty bikes. Oh, yeah. And a lot of, you know, young guys and old guys just building junk. Yeah, yeah. Because they thought it was just that easy. So that kind of came and went. And um, then there was sort of like a little bit of a quiet time in the middle. But it's rebounded into, um, I think, a level of interest in quality mm-hmm. along with uniqueness that's unsurpassed. Mm-hmm. Because people are really rethinking what a motorcycle is in in some of these you know formats and some of the things that people are producing that are just like mind-blowing yeah you know i mean there's some guys out there that are that are building stuff that have never even crossed my mind right you know that i'm amazed by daily yeah you know and that hasn't happened in a long time right, right. so no i think this is a really pivotal time right now that we're in and a really exciting time in motorcycles and the fact that the manufacturers are kind of getting behind young builders and they're not like shying away from it and not not, they're like breaking down those barriers between there's factory bikes and there's choppers right right well you know factories are giving chopper guys bikes to chop yeah because they're realizing that it it goes both ways and it works for everybody and, um, you know, that's, that's creating some pretty interesting scenarios as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we're living in the heyday of it right now. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Well, we're at, like, yeah. a really huge crossroads where you have, like, available technology. You know, mm-hmm. like, when can you buy a $800 take machine that works very well? Right. You could watch a YouTube video on how to use it. Yeah. You know, you could watch, yeah. a, like, a metal fabricator and understand, like, the general tools that you need to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's just this huge explosion. And then, on top of it, 
I heard you say one time in an interview or something where a motorcycle building was kind of like a poker hand, right? Like you kind of kept it close to your chest until it was time oh, to show the world. True, like true. there was not like people weren't like, here's exactly how I'm doing everything. You know, yeah. like, feel free to copy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right because you could, you know. Yeah, and you didn't want it to. Sh you didn't want to show anybody anything until uh, it came out in the magazine. Yeah, yeah. Or you were at some big event because yeah. then it was like, ta-da! You know, you had no idea I was yeah. making that little dumb bracket that's like <laughs> mind bending. Yeah, what a you great know, analogy. Poker hand. Yeah, the. Um, I think you made it sound even better than when I said it. <laughs> but, but yeah, the fact is that, you know, you can't do that anymore. Right. And really, what's the point? Because, I mean, showing the process is part of, I think, what, what people gravitate to these days. Because yeah. they get excited about it. Right. Sure. And, um, and it's, it's, really, it's really flipped. But even saying things like what you just said in the beginning about, you know, getting a good price on a welder, going to YouTube to get some tips and tricks and... And really, you know, like, kind of working to be more proficient at the skill, uh, you know, through those means. Those are sort of like dirty words a few years ago. Yeah. Like, YouTube did, or you sure. looked it up, or whatever. Yeah. But honestly, I think people have been, um, you know, taking that approach and not sort of like. I, th I think it's been used well. Yeah. yeah I think it's sure. It's over the years. That has become something where it's not just shitty information all the time. It's yeah. not all misinformation. Yeah. And there's some some quality guidance. Yeah. That that's just how you access it these days. Yeah. I mean, everybody doesn't have like stacks of, of paper catalogs and manuals. Yeah. And have to wait until some old guy fucking shows them <laughs> right. how to turn the machine on and yeah. you know, where to pick the thing up. Um, because there is quality information and they didn't used to be it used to just be a bunch of half-ass bullshit yeah it's and, kind of like you have like you could get the machine and then you watch the video to like how to turn it on and how to set it up and you know what your stick out should be on your torch and all this stuff and that might just be enough gasoline on the fire to like all right now you're gonna run with it right, you know right. like that that's gonna send you on a different trajectory mm -hmm. whereas when you were in the shop with the tig welder right here with, you know, no yeah. real idea how to operate it or maybe it, it's intimidating yeah. or what, you know, maybe that internet video is just that little bridge to get somebody out of, you know, in a yeah, more comfortable... Because it took years of being around the damn thing. And sure. So we finally figured, we'll, we'll just yeah. try to stick something together. Yeah. And if that doesn't work, we'll... <laughs> start turning try it off. <laughs> start turning yeah. yeah, the big... The, the, yeah. The big, Analog knobs. Yep. Was yours a, a liquid torch, that Lindy? Do you remember? Um, it had a cooler. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was yellow, though. You said yours was green? Mine was green, yeah. I, I didn't even have money for a cooler, so you know what I did? I used to fucking run the garden hose in the torch and then the exit right out of the street. <laughs> yeah. It was, total it was loss. just flowing fun. Yeah, total, total loss. loss system. Total loss oh, system. Yeah, yeah I was like, I'm not, I can't buy a cooler. I barely afford this machine, dude. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah so yeah but like even then like the first few years i had that machine there was it was like before internet i didn't even know another tig welder mm -hmm. like just to find the fucking thing sure. i had to drive to south jersey mm -hmm. um i mean i could have bought one new but that was unobtainium for me at the time as like mm -hmm. a 20 year old kid mm -hmm. and um yeah it was like i didn't even meet another guy who even knew how to tig weld for like years mm -hmm. you know i was like 
crazy. Like Rick said, like learning was not easy back then. You know, like you had to fuck a lot of shit up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 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 literally, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But um, no, I think there's room for that these days. I think it's gotten to the point that that's, you know, totally a, a viable way of at least getting your foot in the door, and and then what you do with it from that point forward sure. is up to you. But, right. Um, but you know, the fear is, is, you know, poor information and things that people feed off of or learn from that's that's incorrect. And I think there's enough good stuff out there that. But that's not uh, not so much of a problem. Anymore. Yeah. Mm. And people just seem to be a little bit smarter these days. Too. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking that, like, um, I think even people before making informative YouTube videos now mm. think to themselves, like, you better have proper information. Whereas, like, you used to see a lot of fucking idiots on the internet. You know? Oh, well, yeah. Well, there's they, enough. Uh, there's I think enough old guys on the internet screaming into the <laughs> into the machine, and you know they're incorrect. Idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people sure are fast to let you know when you're fucking up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they love telling you how bad you're doing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess that brings us right into modern day, man. Yeah. Um, pretty exciting to see what this place really develops into. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to see all the artists yeah, here and all that, man. Yeah, it's going to be, it should be a pretty cool vibe. Yeah. It'll be cool. Yeah, and then art shows above the shop space up there that I showed you is the art gallery so you know it's gonna be planning shows up there mm-hmm. and um, you know maybe we'll do like a little bike event in the area or something or yeah, who knows because oh yeah we definitely love to Dude, come this, right back out this place yeah. fucking screams perfect for a winter event man. Mm-hmm. like a like a mama tribe kind of you know mm-hmm. like something in the winter you know right it's such a killer indoor space you know yeah. I mean summertime cool too but. yeah but it's got the, there's not too many places that have the means to have a pulse indoors, mm-hmm. you know? True. I feel like this place has a pulse. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, whatever it is, here. man, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see what you turn this place into. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's awesome, man. I appreciate uh, your time and giving us this tour, too. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking awesome, man. Sure. Me and Rick are always stoked to see cool shops, but this one... This pretty much tops it, man. This is a really cool place. There's a lot of cool stuff in here. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, I can't think of a, a fucking better guest for the 100th episode, man. Oh, you have exceeded awesome. the expectation, you know? I appreciate that, man. Yeah. That was nice of you guys to come out. Yeah, yeah. We, we appreciate it. Enjoy talking to you. It's our pleasure. Um, but anything you want to tell anyone? Where to reach you? Or... 100th episode. That's awesome. Yeah, 100th episode, dude. I'll... Uh, during this week sometime, I'm going to do all the giveaway shit in the intro. Everyone will see it in the intro. Yeah. You know? But, uh, yeah, I, t- I was kind of talking about it for a while. I'm like, I'm going to get a fucking killer guest for the 100. And uh, <laughs> yeah, here instead. you are, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've looked up to you for years, man. I think it's uh, fucking it's, rad as hell to be nice sitting here talking to you. Well, we've been trying to connect for a long time, so glad yeah. it worked out. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so. I think it worked out perfect. It That's wouldn't awesome. have been as special if it was like the 85th episode. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, we got a great guest for the 100th, some yeah. East Coast representation on top of it. That's yeah. a win-win in my book. Fuck yeah. Cool. Yeah, man, you want to just tell people where to reach you or maybe something you got going on in the future, like you're still selling the airbag kits or yeah, the you got any other products coming? When I get the uh, website back together, I'll have some new things on there. Um, and speaking of shows, I'm probably going to be finishing up this uh, 
this BMW project and bringing it over to um, the hand-built. Cool. It's in Texas. I believe. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the plan there. So um, looking out for that. Otherwise, you know, just keeping an eye on on what's coming up. I got like probably eight or ten bikes <laughs> out there yeah. and a few in here that are all real close to getting done. So. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's kind of an exciting time for that. Coming into spring and summer, I'm going to have some new stuff hitting the road for sure. Cool. Yeah. Well, I see you at the FXR jam. You're like right here now. Maybe. <laughs> no, I'm an hour away. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I rode Medina to the FXR jam last week. Yeah. Um, what was it? Two oh. years ago, I thought you had a shovelhead FXR there. Was it two years ago? Mm, no. I think no. you had like a black uh -oh. and gold. Uh, was it, I thought it was a shovel at FXR you were on. No, I didn't no? know. No? What the fuck am I thinking of? No. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> that was definitely a, a drinking year. It's a fun show. <laughs> but uh, anyways, yeah, I guess people see you where they see it. Yeah, man. Uh, what is it, Paul Cox Industries on Instagram? Yeah, Paul Cox Industries. Okay. And, um, you know, get the shop finished up over here and get the storefront built out so that, uh, you know, People will know where I am, and uh, the door is going to be locked, so <laughs> don't bother trying to come in. Right. Perfect. Perfect. And not for nothing, if they haven't heard of you, they're probably living under a fucking rock, <laughs> you know? Anyways, man, thank you so much Thanks. again, Paul. Sure. Uh, appreciate the time. Appreciate the tour, and I'll uh, see you guys next week. Good luck to uh, whoever's going to win all this cool shit on the 100th giveaway. And uh, or con actually, at this point, it's the end of the show. Congratulations to whoever won. Yeah, um, yeah, good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I forget there was a camera there the whole time. Yeah, it's was there. I supposed to be looking at that for the past two hours. I don't even think I looked I at it twice. So. I never look at it. Oh. I tell people pretend it's not even there. But uh, yeah, all right. Goodbye, world. See you next week.